Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Great Divide podcast. We are now ready to deep dive into The Crossing. And are you ready for this, Fine? I guess it's only a month since episode 79, so why not? Yeah, and, and this is episode 80. Has, and it's been a month since 79 already. Unbelievable. Almost. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's, insane. It's made quick for us, I guess. So, so what do you think our chances are of getting this done by Christmas? Uh, fair chance. <laughs> but uh, without dropping our standards, without making it too short, we don't want to make it too short. Right. Because we keep getting complaints from people that uh, most of our deep dives are very short. So we thought this time we'd really deliver. Yeah, exactly. That's what we thought. So who knows? If we don't, we might have an intermission with a with our Yuletide episode. Um, a Yuletide <laughs> intermission, and then we'll jump back into the crossing. But we'll see how it goes. But look, this is the last... This is the last uh, official studio album deep dive, so we've got to make sure that we we do make this a good one. Um, and and listening back to episode one and two as I did in preparation for this, I now I'm even more uh, motivated to make this a good one. <laughs> so so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do our usual deep diving here. But um, I mean, we we talked a lot in the last episode, so we're just gonna pretty much jump right into the music here and and the first song and get going. But before we do that. Um, I guess what we we need is we need to stick with tradition here. And you know, Stuart Adamson has written beautiful liner notes for every album. He he did that when the albums were initially remastered back in the late nineties. And as has been our tradition when we start these things, we always begin by reading what he wrote. So um, it's fine unless you have anything else that you want to talk about before. You read this, which if you do, feel free. Oh, gosh. Speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> I think we're ready. I think we had the two hours last time to, to get ready for this. Yeah. So so I will just read these things. And this is the last set of liner notes on the last album deep dive that we're doing. And um, these Stuart liner notes have really been revealing because uh, he doesn't sit down and write like a straightforward account of those times. It's a very poetic uh, description of how he felt at the time or how just looking back. And it's uh, it's very beautiful. It's almost like a, a song lyric, like most of them. Yeah. So the one for the crossing reads like this. It all begins with a sound in your head, a disarray of word and music, an awareness of something coming to the surface. Small pieces occasionally break through, but the whole is a mystery. Take the mood, the emotion the passion for it, and make it live. Focus it all, crystallize the essence of it, let it become a living thing, share it. The music I felt wasn't like the music I had grown up hearing, or rather, not like any one of them. It was all of them jumbled up and drawn into something I could understand as mine. I found I could play this music and connect the guitar directly to my heart. I found others who could make the same connection, who could see the music as well as play it. The sound made pictures. It spread out wide landscapes. Great dramas were played out under its turbulent skies. There was a romance and reality, truth and dare. People being people. No heroes, just you and me, like it always is. The music told stories, little stories. Lands were not conquered. Treasure was left in the tombs. The magic was in the everyday. We learned how we are together and how we come apart. Life happens. Beautiful stuff. Mm, amazing. 
amazing. It gives me chills every time I hear yeah. any of those. So beautiful way to begin. And um, really quickly, I'll, let me just read what Tony says about this album. Um, coming from the notes that Tony Butler wrote about all of these releases. Now, Tony's was not nearly as poetic as, as Stewart's, but then again, it wasn't trying to be. He was just kind of reminiscing about everything. So very briefly, as we lead into In a Big Country, Tony says, It has been a very gratifying experience listening to these recordings again. It has definitely reminded me of the initial thoughts and aspirations I had for this group from the very start. To kind of retrace the music in reverse order has given me more of an insight into what the band were all about. But to arrive at the very beginning of the recorded story was like looking at a picture of oneself when one was a baby. The Crossing came across to me in the same way. Of all the albums, this has a unique sound of the time. Put it down to the recording facilities or the instruments used, this album is unique. In a Big Country, I think I've heard this song more than any other song, but it was a shock hearing this album version. I imagine one of you people hearing this for the first time. What an opening track to an album. This brought back loads of memories. So with that, let's get into In a Big Country. Shit! As I just said off offline here, this is not going to be easy. And um, one of the main reasons that this is so daunting to, to do this particular song is because, as you find said when we were beginning this, and I've been thinking about it all week, this isn't even a song anymore, really. I mean, in, in a big country, it's really been a, a struggle for me, but a good struggle, This pre preparing for this, to start to trying to force myself to look at this as a song again. Because over the years, it's become so much more than just a song. It's become sort of a standard, like a, a flag, a symbol of the band, of everything the band believed in, of, of everything that fueled the band's work, of everything that brought us as fans into loving this band. It's, it's sort of like the touchstone, the cornerstone of the entire big country experience. So to look at this and, you know, take it apart as a song and a song only as we've done for so many other songs since we've been doing these deep dives is is difficult it's it's not easy so but hey we're going to take a stab at it here because uh that's what the song itself is asking us to do you know stretch out embrace the adventure that's what we're going to do here so in a big country um let me let me take this from a lyrical perspective first and first off i mean there, there certainly is no other big country song in the entire big country catalog that has so many iconic lines. I mean, you can find certainly iconic lines from other songs, like uh, some days will will last a thousand years, some past like the flash of a spark. That's one. Um, 
You know, there, there, there are many others I could pull from, but, but in a big country has so many. I mean, from the very beginning, come up screaming. You know, if, if a big country fan says come up screaming, which we have many times, we know what that's about. We know what that's talking about. Not expecting you to grow flowers in a desert. Another classic, iconic line. Pain and truth. Uh, you know, stay alive, obviously. Dreams stay with you. I mean, there, there are so many phrases from this song. Almost the entire body of the of the lyric is like an icon in, in big country lore or in the big country catalog. It's, it's incredible. So I, I don't want to... Well, this is going to be hilarious for me to say I don't want to belabor this because I'm about to, but <laughs> but I don't want to go too much in, into all of these because a lot of them have a life of their own that we all pretty much very well understand. But one thing that one thing that hit me this week as I was listening to this and and thinking of how I was going to approach it, and I I think it's the first time it really struck me this way with these lyrics. It, I, I might have thought about it subconsciously before, but I really began to see that I think, you know, in, in my opinion, there's a very good chance that that these lyrics sort of signify or symbolize Stuart singing to himself at the time. Stuart writing to himself, trying to trying, trying to buoy his own courage, uh, his own strength, his own inspiration. Because I think we've got to, when we look at the lyrics to the song, we've got to start looking at the situation in which this song was written and recorded. Okay, so number one, we know as we, you know, if, as we learned in the last episode, if, if that was the first time you've heard this story, that this song was written after um, Stewart had heard what Steve Lillywhite did to Fields of Fire. And when he heard what Steve Lillywhite, Lillywhite did to that song, and he heard the sounds that Lillywhite was able to, to capture and, and conjure out of the band, Stuart was euphoric. I mean, he felt like the sound in his head that he mentioned in those liner notes was finally taking shape. The sound in his head was um, finally there for him to hear. And this is what he wanted. This is what he was looking for with Chris Thomas. This is what he had been looking for since leaving the skids. And this was the sound. And so he was so inspired that he went out and wrote this song very quickly and recorded it very quickly. And I think you've got to keep that in mind when you look at these lyrics and, and look at how he was feeling. So so you also have to look at what Big Country had been through up to that point. I mean, Stuart left the skids. Now you can't sit you can't sit here and say the skids were an international phenomenon because they weren't, but they were a they were a fairly big, you know, post punk type of band and the album before Joy, uh The Absolute Game, had really started to establish them as you know, a lot of people thought they were on the cusp of being something a lot bigger than they were. I mean, they they had figured out the studio. They knew what kind of songs they wanted to do. They were producing great stuff. Um, so for Stewart to leave that band that was still on the rise, I think, in, in a lot of respects, that, that's a big that's a big step. That's a big jump. That's something that, um, you know, it's like people always tell you, don't leave a job until you have something else lined up. Well, he... He had nothing else lined up. He just wanted to leave that band and start something else that he saw in his head. So that had to be a big step and a big source of insecurity for him. Um, number two, he had a new family, which is part of the reason that he, you know, kind of left the skids because I think he was tired of the touring, obviously. And we're not going to go into all that again. We all know those stories very well. But he he had um, a young son who was who was born um, 
when Big Country, the first incarnation of Big Country, was out getting ready to tour again with Alice Cooper. So there was that um, sort of insecurity going on, too, because as a young guy, he was still in his early 20s, and he's now got a family uh, that's that's starting. Um, I'm assuming he was the, the breadwinner in the family. I'm not sure what his wife, Sandra, did at the time, but, you know, you've got all these responsibilities to, to provide. So another reason why leaving a band that was making something was a big jump, you know, a, bi- a big uh, risk that he was taking. So you also have to keep in mind the story of Big Country so far. I mean, they started, they, they had five members, they had three members that just didn't work out. Um, they did the first tour with Alice Cooper. Well, the first couple shows, it wasn't really a tour with Alice Cooper, and they got thrown off the bill. So th- the start of that first incarnation of the band was a disaster. I mean, they had someone come to see them. Uh, they thought there was promise in the songs, but they didn't like the lineup. They wanted them to, them to change the lineup. And again, another huge uh, issue that's going to spark all this self-doubt and this worry for anyone who's trying to do this. Then they work with Chris Thomas. They they do get the lineup that they want in Tony and Mark, and they work with Chris Thomas, as we talked about in the last episode, and they're not happy about it. They don't think they don't like the result. They don't think it works. So they release the first single, Harvest Home, and that doesn't do well. And that and that's a, a failure. So if you look through all of this from the time Stewart left the skids and, and yeah, he played a little bit on joy, but he was gone from the skids at that point. So he, he had been out of that for probably, you know, year and a half, couple years at that point. And this new project that he was trying to put to put together was not starting out well. And as we said last time, if it had happened in today's climate, he wouldn't have even had a second chance. No one would have continued to work with them. They would have said, well, this isn't working. Goodbye. So here we have him, Seeing what Steve Lillywhite did for Fields of Fire and and seeing, yes, finally, this is what I wanted. This is this is going to work. And he was so excited that he went out and wrote what would become the song for the band that would make them internationally famous. And that's still a huge song today. So when you look at these lyrics, I think you've got to keep all of that in mind with what he was going through at the time. And that's why I really think that a lot of these lyrics were written by Stewart as if he is speaking to himself um, and trying to pump himself up for lack of a better word to try to inspire himself and try to celebrate in a way too, as to what he sees is, is in front of him now that he can grasp. And it's not something that he's, he's realizing that all of the risks he took are being validated. So let's look at the first line. I mean, well, first of all, come up screaming is the very first thing you hear. Actually, the very first thing you hear is a Shah. So that's, that's pretty cool too. I mean, Back in the day, they were known as the bagpipe guitar band and the Shaw band in in America. Everyone talked about both of those things. Um, but it was very unique. And that's it's fitting that that's the first thing we hear in In a Big Country is a big Shaw. And then the next thing we hear is come up screaming. Um, what a great line that is. And what an inspirational line. And we'll get more to that, to that into that later in the in the bridge section. But as the lyrics really begin, he's saying... Again, if we're looking at this from the perspective of what he has endured up to this point, trying to put big country together, a lot of this resonates even more so. And of course, the beauty of these lyrics is that they can be applied to anything in any one situation. And that's why people really, um, you know, responded to them so well. But another promise fallen through. We've had a lot of promises fall through with, with 
big country up until this point, you know, as we've, as we've talked about, another season passes by you. He must have felt in that stretch um, quite a bit that everything was passing him by. You know, the success he had with the skids, minimal as it might have been, was still was still something. And now things aren't working out. It's passing it's passing him by. And, you, of course, when you're trying to put something together like that um, in the music business, you've got to you realize that you have a short people have a short attention span even back then you got to get you got to get back out there things probably did feel like they were passing him by because it was taking so long to get this band off the ground um and i never took the smile away from anybody's face and that's a desperate way to look for someone who is still a child which leads us into the great iconic chorus know that Stewart was prone to to these moments and periods of depression even back then which he himself has admitted to and and very sensitive guy a, a guy who very wore his emotions on his sleeve in some respects and in other ways really hid them away so kind of a, a dual sword there but I think he's I think in this he's kind of you know again he's he's trying to encourage himself look look what we've just accomplished um, look what's still there. And that's led him in some respect to this, this iconic chorus in a big country, dreams stay with you. Now, you know, a lot of bands in the past have been mocked for using their band name in a song. <laughs> I don't think you hear it as much anymore. I can't think of any recent examples of it, but, um, maybe there are some, but it, it was a more common thing back in that period to occasionally, you know, have a song that had your band name in it. But, I, I never personally had a problem with it, but I know some people, you know, laugh at that a little bit. But I don't know how you could at this because this song and the way big country is used in this song, it just sets the whole stage for the band's entire, you know, at, at least for their initial, the initial long stretch of their career and what they were trying to accomplish and what they were trying to um, inspire in their listeners and the the source and the fuel for what drove their music and what what a great what a great metaphor you know this big country and and we heard it in the liner notes that's fine red from stewart you know these big landscapes i think is what he said and you have this sense of this adventure of everything laid out before you stay alive you know i always thought that when he says like a lover's voice fires the mountainside stay alive the words, the the phrase "stay alive" isn't in quotes, but I, I often thought about it that way. Like like someone is searching, like the lover is searching for this person who's lost out in the mountains somewhere, and they're yelling, "Stay alive! I know you're out there. If you can hear me, stay alive because I'm coming. I'm going to find you." So you know, maybe that's not what Stuart meant, but that's kind of how I always took that phrase. Like a someone he loves is out there searching for him, and they're going to find him. And you know, it, it's. They're, they're encouraging him just to stay on the path. Don't, don't veer from the path of what you're setting out to do. Your dreams are still alive. Keep them alive because they're going, you're going to find them. You're going to realize them. Um, and then we get to these other great lines. I mean, like they're all great lines, but this one is, is really especially beautiful and, and can be applied to so much. I thought the pain and truth were things that 
Stewart was never about wallowing, especially in the in the early phases of the band and the things that he wrote about. He was never about wallowing in pain. He was never about wallowing in despair. I mean, he he sang a lot about those things. And there are a lot of songs even on this album that have dark stories to tell that don't necessarily um, showcase a happy ending. But he was always about, you know, pain and truth. Yes, here's the reality of the situation. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but you can't just stay here. You you can't stay here where your hopes have been shattered. And if we're going to keep going with this idea of him sing, singing to himself about what they've been through um, career-wise at this point, and many hopes had been shattered. You know, again, you can take it like you can't you can't just remain here. You've got to move. You've got to move forward. You've got to keep going. And instead of just saying that, I mean, we've heard lots of songs from tons of bands that have those types of uh, ideas that they're trying to get across, you know, keep going, don't give up. But the, those types of things always sound so cliched in, in a way. Um, kind of like the, the kitten, the, the old kitten hanging from the tree branch with the just hang in there thing. You know, it's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. But the way he writes these lines, it's the same sentiment being expressed, but it's just so beautiful and so poetic. And it really just, it just hits you. And I'm sure there's, there's so many people who, even today, who, who hear those lines for the first time. And they're timeless. You know, they're always going to be appropriate to the human condition. Um, and then we come to... I'm not expecting to grow flowers in a desert But I can look and breathe and see the sun in wintertime In a big country dream state. As we mentioned before, you know, he, he said in this group of uh, people that met with him in Nashville... Um, he said, I'm not expecting to grow flowers in a desert, but I can live and breathe and see the sun in wintertime were his favorite lines that he ever wrote. And he said that in 1999, you know, that during the driving to Damascus period. So, I, which I thought was interesting, you know, so many, so many songs he'd written since then. And yet this one was still his favorite and you, know, you can't question it. I mean, we all might have our favorite lines of his, but man, how can you? How can you grow, go wrong with, with these lines? And what I think is so wonderful about them and what's so great about them is that it shows that this song isn't one of those um, Pollyanna-ish type of everything's going to be fine. It's all going to work out. It's going to be great. You know, you got this type of thing. Yes, that's in there to some degree. But by 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 saying I'm not expecting to grow flowers in a desert, you know, Stewart is putting it out there immediately that he knows that things can't always be be fixed that that things that there are some situations that can't be salvaged he knows that there are some things that are just bad things and it's not going to be a fairy tale type of thing you know you there are some there are some battles that you just can't win but he's saying but i can live and breathe i can live to fight another day i can keep going i can see the sun in winter time i mean what a great line that is you know, i can see the beauty in these difficult times i can see that there is something that i can hold on to and the sun in winter time is always you know meant to me and probably you know fairly obvious i guess in a lot of respects it's just hope you know hope in these bleak situations and i think there was a lot of hope in a lot of these songs. It, it certainly wasn't the kind of, you know, 
really in your face type of hope that you would see from other bands like U2 perhaps at the time. Um, because as we've said a million times, there was a lot of darkness in, in these songs and in these lyrics and even in Steel Town, obviously it would, when it would get even more oppressive, but there was still, there was still hope there and you could feel that hope. You could feel that even if it was a sliver, there was, a, there was something there that you could hold on to. And that's what I love about that line. And the last really group of lyrics that we've got in the song, very, very much similar to what we've had before as far as sentiment. But I think this is like, this is the moment where everyone, I mean, it all comes together. It all coalesces in this perfect inspirational speech. I mean, in America with, um, with American football, we often see in movies and, you know, they're, they're, they're often these sports type of movies where, the, the team is down. They're, they're going to lose. They're playing to, they're playing against some superior foe and they're losing at halftime. But the coach comes in and he gives them this incredible speech. I don't know what to say, really. Three minutes till the biggest battle of our professional lives all comes down to today. Either we heal. As a team, we're going to crumble. Inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. We're in hell right now, gentlemen. Believe me. And we can stay here, get the shit kicked out of us, or we can fight our way back. On this team, we fight for that itch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw with our fingernails for that itch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference between winning and losing. Now, what are you going to do? just gets them all incredibly fired up and they go out there and they destroy the opponent you know we see that a lot and that's kind of what this is like to me in a way and what a great inspirational speech i mean if Stuart adamson was the coach and in his case it would have been uh what we call soccer um this this might be the kind of thing he would he would say and not not to minimize it because you know, not to take it from the level of you know the human condition into something more banal as sports but it, it's got that that type of feeling, you know, so take that look out of here. It doesn't fit you because it's happened. Doesn't mean you've been discarded. And again, those lines I really see as him singing to himself. come on, you're better than this. You know, you cannot sit here wallowing in all these things that have happened. Just because it didn't work out with Chris Thomas, just because the first version of the band didn't happen, just because things are, are looking a little bit bleak for what you're trying to put together here, it doesn't mean you've been cast aside. It doesn't mean you've been discarded. So you can look at it that way, but 
for for when you look at it in a more general sense of just speaking to someone who's really upset, depressed, um, wow, what what a great what a great line, what a what a inspirational line. And then of course we've got the big one: pull up your head off the floor, come up screaming, cry out for everything you ever might have wanted. And I mean, it's impossible not to hear those lines and just feel that adrenaline kick through you. And, you know, when you combine that with the the sound of the bagpipe guitars, um, and I'm going to move into the music here in just a second, but this kind of is that tangent into the music. I mean, you know, one of the things that people often talked about with um, the old uh, Scottish warriors and the Highlanders when they fought battles and they had the pipes come out behind them and in front of them, the reason they did that is because those pipes and that sound just got them so excited and, and got the adrenaline flowing so hard. And so when you combine and then, and then that would usually set the stage for these, uh, you know, Braveheart like speeches before a battle. And that's kind of what this is like. You know, you've got, you've got this incredible speech, like that's telling the person, you know, look at yourself. This, this doesn't fit you. You, you are worth something. You, you haven't been discarded let's go get up let's go right now and then you've got that with the with the bagpipe guitars behind you and i don't care you know i know they didn't like that at the time and getting pigeonholed in that but that's you know that's what it was and that, and that was great and it should be embraced they were bagpipe guitars damn it but they sounded awesome so um you know th- those are the lyrics and then you've got the the chorus repeated over and over and over again um and and it should be it's a short chorus and it's a great chorus and it sticks in everyone's head so so lyrically, I mean, again, we've got so many lines that are just a part of uh, big country iconography, I guess you could say. And probably the best, you know, probably the most consistently great lyrics that Stewart ever wrote. I mean, as far as when you take a song from beginning to end, you know, these have to be among, if not the best lyrics that Stewart ever wrote. And when you consider how young he was, how early in the band it it was, and the fact that they still were his favorite so many years after he wrote it, it just speaks so much to to the beauty of this song and to how it connected with people and young people especially because, um, you know, it really spoke to a lot of young people at the time, uh, especially young teens. I wasn't quite there when the song came out, so it didn't hit me that way right away, but eventually it did. Um, you know, people who feeling low about themselves in that time, trying to figure themselves out, it gave them hope. And I can't tell you how many, even preparing for the show, I, I was listening to the song on YouTube because it was just convenient. And I was looking at, at comments and, you know, you, you're just naturally thinking you're going to hear from all the old big country fans who have been with the band since the beginning and they'll, who knows what they'll say. But I was amazed to see all the new comments from people who had just discovered the song recently, you know, and, and say there's they don't make even young people apparently who were saying they don't make music like this anymore this is the kind of music that i should have been born into you know this is the kind of period of music that i love and they it seemed like they were young people um, people saying that this song kept them from killing themselves and i've heard that countless times over the years and and yes i know how cruel that is of an irony considering what happened with stewart and i know and understand fully how cruel that irony is to a fan and even just talking about the song now you can't do it without thinking gosh Stuart why didn't you why couldn't you have heeded your own 
advice. But, you know, we're not going to delve into that in these, but we have to at least acknowledge, sure, that's there, but the the power of the words remain. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean those words are not true. It doesn't mean that they're not still potent enough to inspire people. And, um, you know, they, they, they have a life of their own basically in other ways. So yeah, just incredible lyrics. So, I mean, I, I want to talk about the music, but I feel like I've gone on for so long and, and it's fine. You, you've just been listening patiently. So, I mean, do you, I, maybe I'll pull a, pull a, no, you, go ahead, man. You want me we to have, do it? Yeah, oh, go ahead. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so, you know, not much else you can say about the lyrics. Um, but just incredibly powerful. So then we get to the music. I mean, I think this song is obviously still Steve Lillywhite um, bears a ton of credit for this song, not only for inspiring it by what he did with Fields of Fire, but I also think it's an incredible example of, of how great of a producer he was and the things that he brought to this song and the things that he changed. I mean, the, the song, when you listen to the demo, it's very similar to the final version, but structurally it's it's different in some very important ways. And I think probably the most important thing that Steve Lillywhite did, and he says this, so we know that it was his idea, is that when you listen to the demo, um, the chorus kicks in right after the first verse. I mean, just like immediately the chorus kicks in. It's impossible to, to remove yourself from, you know, knowing the album version first. So it's going to sound weird. So it, it's hard to know what you would have thought of that if you had heard the demo first. But Steve Lillywhite's idea was, was um, you know, I think, and this is a very rare idea because usually the, the line that's always repeated, the mantra in popular music is, don't bore us, get to the chorus. So usually you would think getting to the chorus immediately is always a good thing if you want to hit. But Steve Lillywhite said, you know what, Stuart? You're getting to that chorus too quickly, I think. I think you need to to hold back a little bit. Go go to a second verse. You know, these verses are kind of short anyway. Go to a second verse and then bring the chorus in because that chorus is going to be repeated quite a bit throughout the song anyway. So let's let's bring it in um after after a second verse. And what a brilliant stroke of uh of producing genius that was because it really to me it really elevates the song even more. It also gives a little instrumental break where we get another Shah from Stuart and a little lead line. And the other thing that uh, I think Steve Lillywhite did, I'm assuming he had a lot to do with this, is that he brought in that uh, iconic lead guitar part that um, you hear throughout the song. Um, it's 
it's not really a solo per se because there's no guitar solo in this song. I mean, it is a solo guitar, but but it's a line, it's a melody line, and it's it's the one that really got people thinking, "Wow, this sounds like bagpipes." And in the demo, that was not there. In the demo, it was just um, kind of that clean guitar sound pretty much all the way through. And again, it was good. But when you add that that just um, fiery bagpipe sounding lead guitar line in there, wow, the song is just elevated to the stratosphere. And um, so, I mean, that was another thing that he did that I think was uh, Steve Lillywhite I'm, I'm speaking of that I think was just brilliant and just shows how great of a producer he, he really was. A, a good example of something else that's, that Lily White did vocally in that same um, aspect was on the demo version, when you've got that middle part, so take that look out of here, it doesn't fit you. Stewart is singing that a complete octave lower than what you hear on the final recording. So take that look out of here, it doesn't fit you. Maybe he just thought that he couldn't get that high or it never it never hit him that he could hit those higher notes. But when you compare the two, it really does. I mean, the, the demo really seems less powerful because of the fact that he's singing in a lower range there, especially with those lines, which we've already talked about, which are so powerful. And so Lily White had him sing the, those lines an octave higher. And you could hear Stewart is straining. He's straining his voice. He's 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 going to the edge of his range uh, as a young singer learning how to sing. He, he's he's hitting the edge of his range. And and Lily White would do this with U2 as well and Bono when he was recording those early songs. And of course, Bono, I'm sure, was all for it. You know, let's go for it. Um, I get the feeling that Stewart might have been a little more hesitant. But you know what? It works so great for this song because when he's singing those lines um, and he's singing them loud and strong it just adds so much to the power of the vocals because you can feel the intensity in his voice you can feel the strain in his voice you can feel how hard he's trying to get get that feeling across so again so many great production moments from steve lillywhite um oh yeah you know and i'm gonna i'll let you talk about the drums and the bass um, if you want to talk about those i mean you know sure those are those are incredible and as someone mentioned on our podcast page not too long ago um you know a lot of times on the radio people would be disappointed i remember you know if they didn't play the long extended drum intro of that song yeah you would either get the album version with the long extended drum intro or you just get the right into the song you'd always want that long extended drum intro because that that really left a mark with people too i mean as much as the guitars did and everything else um I remember people, I remember very distinctly people thinking like, have you heard that drummer on in a big country? That guy's incredible. And I remember, you know, that was kind of a rare thing too, because in the eighties, we, we had the beginning of these drum machine sounds and just the big, you know, boom, bah, boom, bah. but here we were getting real drums, you know, played by a great drummer, a very busy drummer. 
same with the bass. A lot of these songs, they just wanted people to hit, stay on the root notes of the bass. You know, hit, don't go crazy on the bass. You know, don't go everywhere on the bass. People aren't going to like that. People aren't going to follow that. But here we've got, you know, the drums going nuts, the bass going nuts, the guitar going nuts, um, all kinds of great sounds in the song. So, I mean, there's just so many things about this song that really, you know, some stupid record executive might say, that's never going to be a hit. That's never going to work. But it, but it did. You know, everything came together in a in a perfect storm. Pardon the pun. Have it, you record executives. Yes, exactly, exactly. But the the, the last thing I'll say about this musically, um, and then I will stop, is that uh, <laughs> the, the beautiful thing of this song for me is that, and it, it was the the band's biggest hit here in America, um, and certainly the song that they're most known by around the world. But the thing that's so great about it is that it's so non-cliche i mean everything about this is non-cliche for what you would consider to be a huge popular song is i mean the chord progression is like nothing i ever heard before the chord progression is different than than what you would think i mean you know if you listen to music for years and years and especially you hear hits you often hear the same chord progressions being used over and over again um you know the same type of, even if a song is different you hear the same similar types of things and lyrics and stuff like that but the chords and the structure of this song are so original and so unique and so fresh and there just could not have been a better introduction to the world um and i know that people were introduced to this band with other things in other places but in america anyway this was the introduction of big country and it could not have been a better introduction. I mean, the song was a manifesto for what they were all about, lyrically and musically. It was a fresh sound that people weren't hearing. It was um, it was just everything you could want from a pure musical standpoint of something that retained its artistic purity and also appealed to the masses of people. And what a rare thing that is. So that's it for me on In a Big Country. Um, you know, it, it is. It's more than a song. It always will be. But I would encourage people who feel like they've become numb to the song to, you know, go back and, and really listen to it and try to f- listen to it as a song again. And just just listen to it as if you're hearing it for the first time and think about some of these things. And, and I think you'll be, you know, you, you'll just be amazed again, once again, at how great of a song it is. And, uh, yeah, so there's our opening salvo. <laughs> yeah, fire the shot. So how how do you like your dissertion of this song compared to episode two? <laughs> well, what was it like? Uh, this, this probably was the whole length of episode two, just talking about this song. <laughs> probably. I like it a lot better. I mean, you know, as we've gotten into uh, this this deep dive mindset, it's it's definitely a little bit more fun. <laughs> yeah. And now I never have to talk about it again. I'm so glad. Well, maybe I'll pull you in. You never know. Well, we'll see. But uh, yeah, thank you for going first. Um, full disclosure, I asked if Tom minded going first on this one because I simply wasn't sure how to approach it. And I think you set the stage well in terms of this is not just a song. When you discuss a song like In a Big Country, you, you really are not just discussing the song itself. 
but but just like you yourself, you go through the lyrics and you go through the music and you go through the playing like we always do. But then there's the background and uh, what it means, how it hit people, what it started for the band, all the, the lyrics that have become iconic and what it means. And really about how this song has taken on a whole life of its own. It's not just a song anymore. This is bigger than the song. It's really a calling card for the band, if you will, or a symbol of everything the band stands for. You can really go to town on everything with this song. It's a whole movement or a manifest, or I think Alarm said it. Well, it's a declaration. This really is the band coming out with their manifest, if you will. So it, it has to... All the catchphrases that have been defining the band, including Stay Alive, I think. That's the one, you know, what they end every show with, a calling card between fans of the band. So you can really get lost in all of this. And in my preparations, I sort of got a little overwhelmed by this many times. Because you can write a paper on what the song stands for. A whole freaking paper. You can... uh, go to town on really what it stands for in the history of big country. And even even with all of that, at the end of the day, it's still, quote unquote, just a song. <laughs> so there are elements of all of this to touch on. And hearing you talk about the song the way you did kind of humanized it a bit in those terms. So made it a little easier, perhaps, for me to approach it and having the benefit of your analysis. Uh, but I'll start, I think, I'll really start with the song's inception. Yeah, It's really difficult for us to imagine this today, but back in 1983, when the song was written, Stuart was really unsure of the song's merits. So uh, he had gone to a quiet place to work on it, and it was written according to uh, to legend and lore, as it has been mentioned here and there. It was written in the house of the band's long-term roadie, Les King. Oh, wow. And he sat down, wrote it, he was wrapping it up and not sure. So he called his wife. He called Sandra. And he said, I think I've written a good song, but I'm not sure. So <laughs> he played it and got feedback from her. And then he did the same with uh, John Giddings, who everybody knows as uh, their initial booking agent. I think he was their booking agent for years. Very important per- person in the, the band's history. So he discussed the song with John Giddings. And uh, it's important to note the song was not yet called In a Big Country. It first had a working title of Stay Alive. That wow. was going to be the name of the song. And it was John Giddings who suggested the name change. Interesting. Not just that it should change the name, but he suggested a name In a Big Country. So Stuart brought it in to the one person who never had any doubts about the song or any reservation, which was Steve Lillywhite. And when he heard the demo, it made him cry. <laughs> uh, he really saw the potential in the song and uh, no, of course it was written using the Fields of Fire direction as a benchmark so of course it would fit into what uh, Lily White was doing and uh, he saw immediately that yeah this could be a huge song and uh, soon enough of course if, if Stuart still had reservations he would get further confirmations from the public because the song was released as the third single from The Crossing on 19th of May 1983 it reached number 17 in the UK. It was the third most successful single from this album. Um, it's kind of, I think, not right to include Harvest Home. That belonged to uh, a different era. That was the Chris Thomas era. Yeah. So, so it's kind of um, strange today to think that both Fields of Fires and Chance did better in the UK than in a big country. 
uh, and one was released before and one was after. So it wasn't like there was a increasing wave of popularity either. It was kind of like the mid-dip, if anything. But 17 is good. It's nothing to sneeze at, really. Right. Um, of course, the US, it was uh, much, much better. And uh, Canada was the country it did best. It got the number three in Canada. So North America was very strong for in a big country. So um, it's thought of as the big hit of the band, but that's more the North American phenomenon. But uh, still, it, the song did well. It really introduced the band to many markets outside of the UK. It did, did good all over the place. So um, the, the interesting thing to me is that even this, this rag of a paper, uh, New Musical Express, liked it. And they, they, they never <laughs> liked anything big country, but this one they liked. And I have a quote from their review of it oh. where they said, a definite step up from the simple hook lines of Fields of Fire. So <laughs> is wow. that what they call a backhanded compliment? <laughs> uh, and they go on, this record will go a long way to establishing big country in their own right. Stuart Adamson has chosen his road. Richard Jobson, as we will shortly witness, has mapped out his. And never the twain shall meet. The soaring chorus, warming lyric, and strained echoes of the highlands lend this record uh, the quality of a traditional air, a quiet longing for the hills of home. That was the best I think they ever uh, wrote about the band. So That has to be. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, really. They, they were really horrible towards them. And, uh, so yeah. for a short while, maybe it was a, a temp or someone swinging by the office and writing this and obviously was never hired based on uh, on this but yeah let's um, let's take it for what it is the, the, there was a certain momentum at the time when the song was released so um you you covered pretty well the differences between the demo and the final version uh, sometimes we have these discussions do we prefer the demo do we prefer the album version and i think in this case i can't imagine anyone really preferring the demo but it's very interesting yeah and especially uh the earliness of the chorus which you you went well into the verses are so short that it feels like the song is barely uh, starting and you're already in the chorus right so right. that probably if it's definitely into the don't boris take us to the chorus but uh, uh you know not that you were bored with these uh, these verses either I think especially the genius of having a mid-lead break in the middle of what now becomes the first verse with the demo's two verses. This really fits the song beautifully. And the lower register in the, so take a look up here, it doesn't fit you, is very intriguing as well. He would go back to the lower register in later years here and there, mm -hmm. but then it was much better. This is clearly, if you listen to the demo, some guy who is a little insecure of his vocal abilities and uh, hopefully uh, got that encouragement to, uh, to take the step out. And he never saw back. He often stayed in that key there and after. So it's kind of hard to imagine he would ever be nervous about that one. Right. Another aspect we will probably talk about for every song is changed lyrics. Sometimes there are changed lyrics, not just between demo and album, but also between lyric sheet and album. For this song, there are no changes. It's uh, It stayed the way it did, apart from just rearranging the order of chorus and verse. The lyrics are the same. I think it found its form very easily, whereas others had late changes. So I'll just uh, do the opposite of you and talk about the music first. And you mentioned all these intros. 
there really are quite a few different approaches to intros for this song. All of them starting with the drums. So that is uh, a unique thing. You didn't have a song that started with a long drum like it does on the album version. It's pretty much a drumming extravaganza. Shot! And then the guitars slowly come in. You hear the come up screaming in the background. And then eventually you get the full in-band intro of the song. And the vocals come in a full minute into the song. So that is uh, that's an intro for you. That's that's how the band introduced themselves on record. <laughs> uh, if you listen to the single, it's much simpler. And uh, I must admit, I really don't like the single edit of the intro. It's one single bar of drums, and then there is an edit where the full band starts with a ha, and it's such an obvious edit. And obvious edits are bad edits in my book. It sounds like it's spliced in. <laughs> the drums right, right. cut short. And that's probably exactly what happened. But uh, then again, the benefit of technology, I think these days I can do a better edit of that with the benefit of technology they couldn't even dream of then. But back then you had to splice things in, and that's tougher. So uh, unfortunately for the single version, that doesn't sit right with me. So um, I would have to go with the drum extravaganza of the album. But then we also have the pure mix from the 12 inch, which has even more drum extravaganza and adds in a clapping sound and lots of splashes. So if you like your, <laughs> your mark going bananas, that's, uh, that's the mix you go for the pure mix of In a Big Country with, <laughs> with all its drums. Shut! So that's um, that's the intros uh, for now. There, there are some other versions out there, but these are the ones you will easiest find. Yeah, and and the whole thing about you know we've we've come to to know obviously that Big Country was known for the drum sound as well as so many other sounds that they produce, and particularly on those early albums, kind of this militaristic snare sound that Mark would often use. And yeah. uh, I posted this picture of this this second drum golem on our Great Divide podcast page, horrifying photo of this old golem playing drums. <laughs> and people were saying, who is this? Who is this guy? Who's that? <laughs> he was important to the sound of big country, believe it or not. Well, anyway, to make to make this as brief as possible, the man's name is Steve Gadd, and he was a big influence on Mark. In fact, Mark talked a lot, even in the very beginning of big country when he was interviewed, about his sound because it was a really interesting new sound from from a drummer's perspective 
um, you know, how, how do you, how do you come up with a sound at this militaristic type of sound? And he actually, um, referenced this drummer, Steve Gadd, and specifically the song 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover by Paul Simon, which Steve Gadd played on. Hmm. And that opens up with this pretty, you know, if you're familiar with the song, I guess it's iconic. If you're a child of the seventies or whatever, you would, you would remember it very well. And here it is. So you hear that little marching snare type of thing. And it, that is not obviously as wild as what we would hear from Mark on In a Big Country. But Mark has said that, that that type of snare playing from Steve Gadd really inspired him. Huh. So here's what Mark says about Steve Gadd. He says, I always liked the way Steve Gadd would play roles. I find that gentle tapping on the snare drum more inspirational than some heavy beat. Like, if you hear 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, I love that sort of feel to the music. And I found Big Country was a great way to play rock and roll with some of that involved, just by sticking to the way I like to play drums, rather than trying to play the way I'm told to. I always try to play the way I feel a song should be played. Hmm. So, there you go. Inspiration from Steve Gadd. Nice. There's your your useless bit of drum trivia for the day, for those who didn't (laughs) know it. Steve Gadd, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, believe it or not. There is a big country connection. And you called him the second Gollum. But uh, earlier when we spoke, you said uh, he was actually the first. <laughs> That's true. Well, well, he was the second Gollum that I've discovered, but he is he is probably the most um, fearsome Gollum <laughs> of the two, the other being Martin Chambers. Yes. Good old Martin Chambers, <laughs> who uh, shows up somewhere in the crossing timeline by way of uh, Tony playing with the Pretenders. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Martin Chambers. We should have made a bigger point of him when we discussed the timeline, but that's a lost opportunity now. <laughs> but, yeah, you, you don't hear a lot of those uh, militaristic things on uh, in a big country, but they had already done it on Fields of Fire for sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it would show up definitely here and there. It, it became a mark thing that he would sometimes do and probably is more known for than uh, than Mr. Gaddis. Yes, definitely. So uh, speaking of the, the rhythm section in general, I mean, uh, a lot of you have probably listened to the bass track of In A Big Country and the drum track, because I have posted both of those separately on my YouTube channel. And uh, people repost them to uh, big country groups frequently. So you can actually listen to the complete drum track in separation with no other instruments and the same yeah. for the bass track. And um, one thing that uh, hits you when you uh, listen to those, it kind of sort of uh, enforces how I really took the song. It's a really solid band performance where, the, sure, the bass is, is uh, anything but just holding down a basic beat. And there, there's a definite skillfulness in playing it. But at the same time, it's it holds the part down well and holds down the song without really demanding focus. If you chose to see it, if you chose to look at it, you will see a lot of flourishes. But if you listen to the song, it doesn't stand out and demand, like, look at all these things with the bass, which perhaps is more prevalent on other songs on the album. And I feel the same about the drums. But, uh, you know, there's lots of stuff there. And I thought uh, as an experiment, what we could do on uh, the podcast is give you the rhythm section, give you a taste, maybe not the full song, 
But uh, here is a sample of the rhythm section of big country playing in a big country. Yeah, so as you hear, when it's just the bass and the drums, um, you hear little things happening all the time. There's the old hi-hat double swirl, and you will definitely hear small bass runs, but uh, again, not featured parts. And when you add the guitars, and my gosh, there's a lot of guitars on this song, and you, you add the vocals and stuff, it uh, that kind of takes most of the focus on this song, but uh, these other bits are there if you want to listen to them. And uh, for other songs... Definitely a lot of virtuoso moments where the drums stand out more, where the bass stand out more, and sometimes the guitars stand out more. I think a big, In a Big Country is really where the band sound is established. It's one of the prime examples of the band sound, and everything just falls together very naturally. So that's, uh, that, I think, is a strength of the song, for sure. Uh, it also marks the first appearance of Christine Beveridge. Yes. She uh, has female vocals on The Crossing. She's not on every song, but she is on this song. Lovely vocals. I mean, we have, we have some uh, fantastic female vocalists in uh, big country history. Uh, Kate Bush, but also we have Eddie Reader appearing there. We have Junis Miles Kingston, and we have Mary Clayton, which is probably their best vocalist on one of their worst songs, but that's a different story. Uh, but... Uh, Christine Beveridge is very interesting in how she approaches this. And I will speak more about her, actually, when we get to the storm, which I think is her moment on the album. Uh, fantastic stuff she does there. That's not Mark Brzecki on that studio track? Uh, we'll, we'll dive into it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll dive into that one. <laughs> um, but uh, you definitely hear Christine first on, on In a Big Country and uh, doing some incredible... Uh, you know, Mark's pants would have to be really tight indeed for him to sing that part. <laughs> Who knows? They, they could be. Maybe he borrowed Stuart's pants from the Chance video. <laughs> right. Would you be interested in hearing a short clip of how Christine Beveridge sounds when she sings lead vocals outside of Big Country? Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure a lot of people have gone and checked that out, but uh, I have an example. She does not have a long and established music career, but she has some years from very late 70s to about mid uh, 80s where she sang on various projects. And in 1981, the lads in the Scottish band The Associates released a single under the, under the alias 39 Lion Street. And on that song, they had Christine Beveridge on lead vocals, and the song was called Kites.
So what did you think? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Especially, you know, we'd have to think that they heard that since, as you say, it came out in 81. And it's got that ethereal quality that fits what she did on the crossing as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, I also, I love that the 12 inch mix too, how it, I really, I mean, I always know, notice her voice there, but when I heard the 12 inch mix, it really stuck out, especially like when Lily White isolated her singing the harmonies to, I thought that pain and truth were things that really matter on yeah. that 12 inch. Just beautiful. So yeah, that's a, that's a great. I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot. That's a great uh, um, companion to Stewart's voice. I think it really adds to the whole feel, and it's done subtly. It's nice. Yeah, exactly. I think um, sometimes when they went for the the name collaborator, they didn't quite get uh, the results. But for this one, which definitely was not a name, and probably would have benefited her more than Big Country, it was a perfect match. Yeah. That's really a perfect match. Very so, cool. Nice, nice pull. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people haven't checked her out, but there, you, there she is. So right. go check out uh, Christine Beveridge. She has a, a small but interesting career, of which Big Country was clearly the peak. And she's on Facebook too, I believe. Yes, I know that people have talked about being friends with her. So yeah, yeah, definitely. She's uh, she doesn't run away from her musical past. Cool, like so many people do. <laughs> But with, but with that, I will uh, go into the lyrics because the music has been covered well. It's a, it's a great band song to me, more than a fantastic virtuoso. But it does establish that, yeah, are we allowed to call it bagpipe guitar? I really don't like to use it. But uh, this is one of those songs that establish that sound along with Fields of Fire, I think, more than uh, a lot of songs on the, the album. I say embrace it. Yes, we, we should at this point. It's a badge of honor. Well, I was even reading an interview with Mark recently that was done at the re- around this time, which is where I got more of the Steve Gadd stuff. And he says, in the, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but he says, like, uh, a lot of people complain about the bagpipe sound, but I hear it. It definitely sounds like bagpipes to me. <laughs> so he said that, like, immediately. <laughs> he probably got slapped around for that. But, uh, yeah, but one thing is that it does, but I, I get that it continually being brought up. Yes, continually yes. mentioned. I think uh, it's more that because right, right. We we don't just mention that. At least we dive into every other aspect, which uh, should be done. And the problem I think with with the guys is that because as we as we've learned in this podcast, even with the skids, they were being compared to bagpipes. I think the problem really became when it was it was they were accused of like using this as a gimmick, you know, as a gimmick to yeah. to sell their music when it was just a natural thing and and as Stuart once said later on he thought it was it was kind of racist to to act as if this was some comical thing because that that's the traditional style of music that he learned and i remember his line was something like it, it's like complaining about something he, he said something like nobody in detroit nobody complains about someone in detroit you know um using that musical styling that they grew up on in their own music and yet they make fun of it you know when i use it i'm heavily paraphrasing here, but uh, he said he thought it was kind of almost a racist thing to say. So I think that's really where it started to annoy them. Probably less so in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So out of that, we'll move on to the lyrics. You covered them well, I think. Uh, You covered it from Stuart's perspective, which is very interesting to me. 
I have some quotes from Stuart about this song. Three quotes, actually. The first one is uh, from uh, a big country special at the DIIR Broadcasting Corporation in late 83, where he says, I think it's a very Scottish trait for people to be optimistic in the face of abject disaster, as it were. (laughs) And I was just trying to put that feeling to music. Yeah, that speaks for itself. And then a second quote from Melody Maker, May 26, 1990. The lyrical idea for the song was about having hope, having a sense of self and dignity in times of trouble. And a further quote from uh, the same interview. Mark used to say all the time, you know, we created a monster. Suddenly everybody wanted a piece of the action. I was fortunate in that I'd been through that with skids. It's exciting, but there's a tinge of sadness to it all. You can't look back. I don't think we've ever really thought about how much impact that had on us as people. We went from the fucking bottom of Division 4 to being contenders for the first Division Championship within the space of six months. And <laughs> it does your nothing. I don't care who you are. Yeah, I remember that quote. So, yeah, interesting reflection. Not necessarily so much on the song, but on everything that happened in its wake yeah. as it came out, because it really made things happen for the band. And um, I think the themes of the song are really well um, explained by Stuart here. Optimism in the face of abject disaster and having a sense of self and dignity in times of trouble. Yeah, pride that grows in hardship. Exactly. It, it's all in there. And this is uh, probably not the hardest song to decipher from, from that point of view. I see it as one half of a conversation, really. Whether he has that conversation with himself or someone else, it really doesn't matter because um, the song wouldn't change. In any case, the singer is saying something to that other person or the other side of himself, which by all counts is very distressed. Like, I've never seen you look like this without a reason. So he's already acknowledging that he or she or himself must have a good reason for the state they're in. They don't just get distressed for nothing. Uh, And you take the lyrics, another promise falling through, another season passes by you. If you take that at face value, someone broke a promise. Someone didn't come through, like another promise falling through. And um, it likely wasn't a minor thing. This is a big thing we're talking about. Someone has almost betrayed the situation or betrayed him. And that's a desperate way to look for someone who is still a child. This is the point where we start wondering how the other person really is looking. Because we have established they look like they are distraught. The smile was taken from their face. But that's not enough. It's how they look. It's a desperate way to look, especially given their age, which clearly is too young to look so burdened and with the weight of the world on them. And that's um, so. So it's it's very dramatic what's going on. It's a dramatic uh, premise for the song, and it, we don't really have the premise, but that's okay because the song really isn't about what happened. It's about how you should react to what is happening and how you should move on from what happened. That is really the key. Once this first bit is established, then you move on to how do you really proceed from there. So uh, in the second verse, the singer adds, you can't stay here with every single hope you had shattered. Uh, That's a strong word, shattered. Something's completely destroyed. So in some, whatever is going on, whatever this heartbreak or betrayal is about, a total loss of hope, shattered. There is some heavy stuff going down. So... How do you comfort someone in such a desperate situation? You sing the chorus to In a Big Country. That's how you do it. In a big country, dreams stay with you. 
it's really part of what comes in the last part where he says, I'm not expecting to grow flowers in the desert, but I can live and breathe and see the sun in wintertime. Where both parts of that sentence are quotable in their own right, but together they're kind of very, uh, a very powerful statement. And you can really translate that line into, I don't expect to be able to do miracles, but sometimes it's enough to be alive and to see the positive in a dark situation. And again, we have an example of Stuart's use of winter, which we have discussed many times before. Winter as an allegory for depression and seeing the sun in wintertime, seeing hopes in times of depression. It's a, it's, so the song is very encouraging. And um, later they would describe some of the hopelessness that the other person is feeling without necessarily looking at it from a positive angle. But here in this song, there's a lot of hope and trying to look at things from a positive angle. And that's... Um, something I think a lot of people see and keep coming back to. And it's very encouraging to hear you mention those YouTube comments that this is still going on. And people are still discovering this song and still seeing something positive and getting something out of it. Yeah, I felt that way too. But really the, the crux of the song and the solution to, to everything is um, moving on. You can't stay here with every single hope you had shattered and then going into the cars in a big country, dreams stay with you. So if you move into this big country, whether it's a mental space of uh, just uh, look at the larger picture or actually needs to physically leave a situation physically or move to a different location, anything's possible. Everything fits. The important thing is that you move on and that you get into a place where your dreams are possible to thrive and where they can stay alive. Just like a lover's voice fires the mountainside, the dreams will stay alive just like that voice resonates. And it resonates with stay alive, which is what you can do if you move on. So it's um, easy to decipher in many ways. Interesting backstory. It would be really interesting to, um, to, to understand if it's written for someone. What I always uh, see there as a connection is uh, a song like Chance, which we know was written at the same time as in a big country, in the little between uh, Fields of Fire and then coming up again with uh, new songs for the actual album sessions, which um, we have quotes from Tony when we get into Chance that he, he confirms this was written at the same time as in a big country. So there you have a similar situation where you have a woman who was betrayed and what that led to. And here you have a song of comfort, whereas Chance just describes the situation without speaking to anyone. In a big country speaks to someone. So I'm not saying they necessarily are about the same thing, but it's interesting that they were written at the same time. And that uh, lends a connection to it that uh, it's it's worth keeping at the back of your mind, if nothing else. So um, that's really the, the lyrics and really the music and really the song. Uh, it's It's the calling card of the band, like the phrase, stay alive. It all comes from this song. And uh, for a long time, it really summed up everything for the fans. But uh, just because of that, for some reason, I think for me, this was perhaps the one song that was the most poisoned by Stuart's death, and especially how he died. I think these words lost a lot of meaning to me back then. I think we got a lot of that back when uh, the band came back with Mike. And Simon sings it well as well, but Mike was really the one who uh, filled the song with passion again for me. Yeah. So... Um, this, uh, this is a song that's been through quite a journey, you know, for everybody who followed the band since those early days. And with everything we experienced and everything that's happened, 
and now we are still here and uh, we kind of have the song back but man the mileage on this song it it just adds to everything doesn't it it everything the band has been through is kind of all related to the song somehow it really is yeah and I, and it's funny you mentioned Mike because I, I got to say when he played when they played in uh, Leesburg um and they back in 2013 and they did that song uh, that was probably like I felt such a rebirth of that song when he did it because he, he like came down into the crowd and everybody circled around him and everyone was like doing like this jumping up and down circle around Mike. And he was singing that song so passionately. And I, I never really had, had felt that way about the song for so long because yeah, it, it not just because of Stuart's death, but even before that, because it was the quote unquote popular song that everyone knew the band for. So as a diehard fan, you sort of hold it at arm's length a little bit because there's a little resentment. Like this is the only song people care about. But there's so many other great ones. But when he did that, it sort of brought the song back to life for me. It was it was incredible. It was like a very spiritual, uplifting moment. So yeah, I, I agree. Mike deserves a lot of credit for uh, sort of reinvigorating that and and taking that back. Yeah. for it and make it live focus it all crystallize the essence of it let it become a living thing share it
when I did episode two, all that was just kind of starting. And I remember saying on that show that I thanked the band for sort of reinvigorating that song and that feeling because they, they did. Mm -hmm. They definitely did. And Mike also uh, did a TV special on that song. It should be mentioned like songs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What was it called? Songs that saved my life. Saved or... my life. Something like that. Yeah. 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 And that was in a big country. The song that saved my life. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I think that's on YouTube. It's a, very uh, wonderful show, very wonderful episode. So yeah. uh, that's uh, well worth checking out as well. And uh, yeah, what else should we say? Uh, the Beavis and Butthead reference. <laughs> we, we have discussed that before, but uh, this is the song that made it to the Beavis and Butthead show. And uh, for the most part, they, they were not kind to the songs on that show, but they were quite kind to, uh, to In a Big Country. Yeah, not a bad thing to say about it. Yeah, especially Beavis was very, uh, very complimentary and I guess that's why he called in to us with a speak pipe in episode 79. So th thank you for that, <laughs> yeah. Beavis. Beavis is clearly still in the big country camp. Yeah, he must be. Yeah, maybe he even has a website out there. It, <laughs> he, he could. It might be pretty comprehensive. Yeah, you, you never know. Check it out, butthead. Three wheelers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those are cool. I heard if you like turn really sharp on those, they'll turn over and crush you. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you peel out, you can tear up all the plants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> Divers, <laughs> go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 
This is like a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they need that short guy hand job to come out. <laughs> <laughs> you said job. <laughs> And I remember Stuart, you know, was aware of that as well, because after the Buffalo Skinner show, I saw them, people were talking to them outside and I, a guy this fairly, you know, the Beavis and Butthead was still pretty new at the time. And someone said, you know, they played that song on Beavis and Butthead. And he said, yeah, I know. And he's like, and they liked it. And he says, yeah, I know they did. <laughs> and he was like really <laughs> happy about that. So, yeah, that was a funny moment. Oh, that was nice. Um, yeah. So, um the video we have discussed the video in the past it's uh, it's kind of um i think you you liked it better than me at the time it's it's it has a charm it really does yeah that's that's about it you know it's got a charm it's, to it's it. got it's a charm different Not, nothing in it makes sense to me still and uh, that no. <laughs> um, uh, whether it needs to make sense is another thing but uh, we can mention that uh, the woman in the big country video is uh, barry chadwick she was the receptionist at edwards and grant Back in those days at 123 Edgar, Edgeware Road. That's where they used to be. So if you went in there to the Edwards Grants management, you would meet Barry in the reception. Nice. Uh, she was also Ian's PA. So th- that she was there, so they put her in the video. That's ju- just kind of a nice little <laughs> thing you can experience when you are near where things happen. And she punched Stuart in the face. She punched Stuart in the face. Pathetic. And at the end, he got the girl, Barry Chadwick. <laughs> probably booking an appointment with Ian Grant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, just to wrap up this song, um, I, I understand this was the first song most people heard. Uh, it wasn't for me. Uh, I first heard it as an album track. So uh, for me, it was never really that introduction. It was never a single. It was never much played on the radio, and I never saw the video back then. So it was an album track, one of many. But even though it was that, an, an album track and nothing more, it was clear to me from the get-go that this was clearly their signature song um, and a mission statement and really just having the the name and the title uh, was very important and enough of a signal really to set it apart and also the quality of the song uh, spoke for itself and all the key phrases from it Uh, so um, yeah a good song It, it wasn't one that really grabbed me back then it's one that probably I've grown to like more over the years um it's not the my favorite on the album, and I think the, the road wear and always having heard it means I just don't reach for it that often. Yeah. And uh, on, on an album, and we're going to have to get into our ranking and moan about having to rank an album like The Crossing, because that's that's really tough. And all the songs are so close. And I think you said to me, this was the difficult one, the worst one you, you ever had to, to rank. Yeah, this album was very difficult. And we just have to remind everyone, you know, that that if a song gets ten, number 10, the, the natural inclination is to say, oh, you don't like that song? But of course that's not the case. You know, it's like we have to rank them in some order. They, these could be neck and neck. You know, the difference between 1 and 10 could be just centimeters, you know. So uh, 10 centimeters, millimeters even. So just because a song ends up as number 10 on this ranking doesn't mean that we don't love the song just for whatever reason. You know, it's uh, it's the one that we don't go to as often, perhaps, or whatever. Yeah, and that, that's kind of how I rank these when I when I did it. I, I I didn't necessarily think what's the best quote unquote best song, because in a lot of ways, in a big country, from a writing standpoint, from a technical standpoint, from everything else, it is is clearly like the in a lot of ways the best written song. You could make a good argument for that, but I, I just went with what 
what moves me the most, you know, what song I will go to more often than the others. So yes. that's kind of what I, what I took it. I'm assuming you probably did the same. Yeah. You, you kind of have to ranking a song is and should be a personal thing. It has to be what moves you use whatever criteria you like. But for this one, which is so tough, I wanted to, uh, I wanted people to feel our pain so this brings us into this uh, initiative we uh, did on the Facebook page. And this is the second time ever we did it. We did the same thing for the Buffalo Skinners. We're doing it again for The Crossing. And that is to ask people to rank the album completely, from 1 to 10 in this case, every song. And uh, we got a lot of people doing it. Most of the people had the same kind of uh, postscripts to their votes that uh, you just added now. That, uh, yeah, these could all change tomorrow or dang, this is hard and doesn't mean I hate number 10 or stuff. And all of that is understood. But if we forced you to go through the process, then you understand how we feel. But also calculating these votes and getting a sum of all the people's votes. And we have 80 people voting on this, which is substantial. For uh, the Buffalo Skinners, we had uh, 50. Wow. If that, I think shortly around 50 or so. So that's that's a that's a big pool, eighty votes. So if you calculate all the songs ranked one through ten, and it needed to be, it needed to be a complete set of votes like that, or it didn't qualify. And with eighty of those, you start seeing some tendencies, and the results are really interesting. And for an album that is so close as all the songs on the crossing, to still see a song being a clear number one, to see a song be a very clear number ten, mind you. And uh, some songs in the middle perhaps being very, very close to the point where a couple more votes just skewed the right way or the wrong way or just to, to influence something that could change some songs around in the ordering. So that's very interesting. So for at the end of each song, we'll give our rankings, but we'll also look at the public ranking, which has a lot of weight with 80 people. Nice. And, and one thing, one other thing that we'll do that I haven't even told you, but... Um... At the end of this whole series of podcasts, I, I went back and I, was, I told you I was reading in the country club, early country clubs, and they did this um, in the country club, like after the crossing came out and had been out for a while. They they had all of their readers um, rank the songs as their favorite, mm-hmm. which one was their favorite. So we'll reveal that at the end and see how that compares to today. Nice. Did it say how many they had? How many votes? Um, I think it did. Uh I think um, it was more than 80. I think it was a couple hundred, maybe. Wow, that's a lot. So, and and I was re- I remember reading it. I was like, really, really? So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, just like for Steel Town. I remember you read out the same uh, country club votings for them. And there were not many hundreds or hundreds of people there even. I think less than what we have now even. Yeah. And there were some doozies. Like, I remember Flame of the West did not do well. Right, right. At all. That was probably the worst song in that voting and that that i remember <laughs> so, right but all right we'll, we'll see how we do so so with all of that and all of this how do you rank in a big country i rank it as my number five and um that being said a lot of that ranking even though this goes against what i just said a little bit ago a lot of that ranking just goes because it's it's the song i'll play the least from this album i mean let's be honest but uh, because just because I've heard it so much, but it, it's it's such it's just such an amazing piece of work that I had to give it points for that as well. Um, as I said, it, if you look at this, if an alien came down and just looked at these songs, they would probably say, "Gosh, this is the best written song on the album." Um, 
and it's a song that appeals to most people, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, we've talked about it. It's, it's just, it's not the song I would go to for many reasons, but it's still, it's an incredible song, but I'll, I'll give it number five based yeah. on sort of a new appreciation that I've gotten for it. Yeah. And dissecting it. Square in the middle. Right in the middle. Yeah. Uh, well, I have it at number nine. Oh, wow. Which, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. It's, it's neck and neck with number four, for example, right? It, <laughs> what does it matter? How, how can you hate, how can you hate in a big country? Yeah, I truly hate it. You know, <laughs> at, at least, uh, at least I didn't send it to hell, which is number 10. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, you, you mentioned getting new appreciation by listening to it. I got that for every song on this album. Uh, this, yeah. uh, this, this, this doesn't get more than the others. And the, at the end, it's simply not a song I reach for. Uh, as much it, it, I've heard it a zillion times there are many songs in this album I actually will reach for so I have to give it to those alright very cool yeah so it's my number 9 and it's your number 5 but uh, let's look at uh, the the public opinion of the song in a big country for each of the song there's a lot of statistics we can get into and I'll try to keep it at least on an interesting level and ditch all the uh, all the severe number crunching but what I can say is this uh, this did pretty well. It uh, was ranked number four overall. Mm. And uh, I counted the number of people who voted it. They're number one and uh, similarly number 10. And for this song, 14 people out of 80 has this as their number one. And I can tell you that is the second highest number of uh, number ones. And it's still ranked only number four. Wow. So if so if uh, you go by a strict number 1 poll, this is actually number 2, but overall it's number 4. And five people rank this as their number 10. Wow. So that's uh, that's an interesting one. Uh also the average placement which is, you know, obviously between 1 and 10, what the ranking adds up to is 4.96, which places it really at an average grade of 5, an average ranking of 5. And uh Obviously, with 80 voters, the minimum sum of votes you can get is 80. That's if everybody gives it one. And the maximum is 800. That's if everybody ranks it number 10. So the number of points in a big country got where the lowest number is best is 397. It's actually a pretty good uh, result. Not bad at all. That's that one. So again, five for you, nine for me. The people place it at number four. Nice. All right. Excellent. And we've got one more thing to do with these songs, as if we didn't need something else. But uh, some of you listeners might remember the hilarity that ensued back in the Buffalo Skinners when I <laughs> counted all the karate barks on that album and compared it to uh, other albums. So we thought it would be, we would be fun to, uh, since karate barks are, are such a were such a big thing when this album came out because nobody had ever heard a singer yelling things like sha and ha and ya before at least not in this not this much we thought we would go through every song and give you a karate bark countdown <laughs> i still can't believe that we have settled on the name karate barks for this <laughs> <laughs> i've read that in places you know i've read that in other places so i just yeah, kind of yeah. what i went for it so we could call it anything we could call it highlander cries or whales i don't know <laughs> But karate, from a, for alliteration purposes, karate fits crossing. So we, we, we've hired a professional voiceover artist to give us the countdown. So, sir, you've been waiting patiently in a drunken stupor. Give us the karate bark count. The crossing karate bark count for In a Big Country. 
Crossing Karate Bar Countdown. H. Hey guys, John Wilbur here in southern New England. A few thoughts on the crossing uh, in 1983, the music scene at the time, which was, um, I have a, I owe a great debt of gratitude to my younger brother, Jimmy, who uh, introduced me to both REM with Murmur, which came out that year, and the crossing, of course. And I was at school and one of the one of the things about it was big country was was clearly the favorite at the time and it still is and in december of 83 a bunch of guys were going into the city new york city from we were going i was going to school on long island they went into the city to i believe the roseland ballroom which was the december gig of big country and although i had been at sea for six months in the tail end of uh, the uh, previous year all that money was spent buying a car, and I didn't have enough money to put gas in or food in my stomach, so I couldn't afford tickets, and I couldn't go into the city. And that is one of the biggest regrets I have to this day. But anyway, they went. They said it was a great show. I missed it, and I wasn't able to see them again until the Journey Tour. But that's neither here nor there. But the crossing is the one thing from that time period that really stuck with me. It stuck with me more than Murmur, even. Um, what an album, really, good God. Uh, unlike anything that had been heard at the time, and it took a while for, for some of it to sink in, but it, it has set in like cement. And my, my favorite song on the album is probably Inwards. That's the one that tends to stay up there, and for a couple of reasons. The, in the New Year's Eve show, that breakdown section, um, I just love that. And, and the play out and the guitar work in there is just fantastic. And then it was reaffirmed by our good buddy and uh, benefactor to the race, Jason Allen, with his his cover of it. What a what a magnificent cover of a great song. Totally different, but you know, a good song is a good song, as Bruce says. And my next favorite is probably that Steamroller Para Man. Once it starts percolating and, and going along, it's it just plows down everything in its way. And there's a get back to, to, to inwards for a second, a possible answer for scouts is that in Oxford and Cambridge, I believe, scouts are, are housekeepers and they take care of staircases, which are sections of dormitories. Um, and I don't mean that the staircases, I mean the staircases are, are rooms and the students that live in them live on that staircase, but they don't live in the staircase. Anyway, possible answer, probably not it. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Bye. Alright, song number two, Inverts. Maybe this won't be as long as in a big country, but if it is, then so be it. But we'll see. A very interesting song, and it's one of their earliest songs. So let's start by going back to the timeline. 
I'm sure everybody remembers every single aspect of the timeline from episode 79 has it photographically ingrained in their memory. And then you will recall that uh, Stuart left Skids on the 13th of April 1981 during the early stages of recording the Joy album with Skids. But just three weeks later, he has teamed up with Bruce Watson and they are in full swing writing and recording songs at Townhill Community Center. At that point, they already have eight or so songs demoed on their Task and Four Track Porter Studio. And one of the tracks they had from that very early stage was Inwards.
It's interesting to note that from the very earliest days when Stuart and Bruce recorded all these songs from the Porter studio and put down the arrangement, Bruce recently pointed out in a Facebook discussion that the arrangement of inverts has never changed. This is one of the songs that has always had the same arrangement. And that uh, kind of blew my mind when he said it. And I, I went back and listened to some of these. And, and of course, he knows what he's talking about, but I just had to hear it for myself. And he's completely right. And, and that includes this early Town Hall version and all the way to a year later when they recorded with Chris Thomas and all the mm-hmm. way to another year later when they recorded the album with Steve Lillywhite. And beyond that, all these years later to still playing it live today. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of songs had small amendments to them, but this one was always uh, the same from inception to the way it still exists today. And that's really remarkable. So if we listen to that early version from Townhill, recorded in May 1981, it's it's very fascinating, as always, to hear very early versions of a song, and especially that it is the same, the exact same shape and structure. The demo version, of course, or that early version, I should say, even before properly demoing it it's a little roar it's a little faster and obviously a little less polished than the album version but structurally really it's the same the way things come in and and play out and and at its heart this really is a frenetic song a, a lot of stuff happening in it and i think that uh, goes hand in hand with uh, the lyrics of the song and what this song is about so i will start with the lyrics and uh there are some interesting things to uh, to note, especially, as we mentioned before, in a big country. Sometimes we have lyrical differences with the demo and lyric sheet. And this is one of those songs where we have some interesting changes. And I will talk about them when we get to them. Briefly, the background to the song. Obviously, being very early, Stuart had left the skids. Also, he had gone through a personal uh, change where his grandmother had died. And all these things triggered a song like Inverts, which uh, is kind of a bag song for everything going down and uh, and how you, you deal with it. I'll talk more about that as we go through specific lyrics. But if you look at the first uh, stanza... This is a theme in Stuart's writing. Stuart has always seemed to be haunted by missing things that he wanted to be there for. And they were always family-related things. And he always talked about how he missed so much. He missed seeing his kids growing up. I mean, this theme was there even before he was a dad. But in later songs when his theme came up, it was then very much about his kids. In songs like Send You and Bella and many, many, many others. And what he wants to do in music, what he is passionate about career-wise takes him away from the things that are so close to his heart. And Inwards is really the first song that hits right in the center of all of this. So uh, the going back to the lyrics, I wouldn't want to go out on a night like this when I found out that some of the past has been missed. In this case, it could be the death of the grandmother. You know, he wasn't there. He missed out on it. And even missing out on being more with her when she was alive. Having to go out, missing out on things, it's its core to the song. And it's really a, a theme, not just in his songwriting, but in his life. It's something that uh, bothered him and uh, 
it was always a conflict between career and family life and uh, not always being able to strike a good balance. And that shows in the next line, the light in the windows has burned its fuse, which uh, refers to the tradition of leaving a lighted candle in the window when a loved one was away, uh, particularly in fishing villages of old. And that light would then lead them home to safety. Like uh, as long as you kept that light burning, they would see it out there and they would know which way to come home. But as he says in this song, the light in the window has burned its fuse. There is nothing to direct him home. And that, um, that is kind of a, a very stark line when you start thinking of all the meanings and all the traditional meanings of it. It's a very dramatic line. Then you can think about something like um, we mentioned also in the last episode when Big Country was asked to leave the Alice Cooper tour. And uh, Ian Grant said, I don't think Stuart was too bothered. He was keen to get back up to Scotland and see Callum. So um, as we know, Callum was newborn at that time. And uh, in that case, the, the light in the window was burning. But in other cases, it wouldn't be. And in fact, the Alice Cooper tour probably ended perfectly for him. It wouldn't always do that. There was always a sacrifice. And then the last line in that verse, I pull everything in, but everything's loose. It's really tough when you start feeling emotional about all the stuff you have missed and all the stuff that's happened to you, trying to pull yourself together, but inside everything is a mess. So pulling it inward as it could also be in terms of trying to hide the turmoil of emotion or pulling yourself together, trying to keep it inside or, or make sense of it, but you're failing. Everything's loose. It's all over the place. And um, as a postscript to that particular line and discussion, we have a very interesting take from uh, Mark Berzecki. They were discussing, and when, with, with they, I mean the band, they were discussing, discussing in an interview what songs would mean and going through the album. And they were talking about inverts. And Stuart was explaining that he wrote it just after he left Skids and uh, his grandmother had died. And then Mark suddenly says, I always thought it was about having diarrhea. I pull everything inwards, but everything's loose. And that's just, I laughed and laughed. That's just, <laughs> right. What, what was that from? Was that a magazine or was that a video? I kind of remember that, but I can't place where that came from. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I I don't have it here, but uh, I'll ask the one who, who tipped me off. Uh, okay. I know I've heard that before. Yeah. That's one of those things. Yeah, just, just to add a laugh in here, because otherwise this could be too grim. But uh, yeah, everything's inwards, but everything's loose. It's So the first couple of verses there, it's, it's very clear what it's about. And uh, whether it's family things, because he doesn't say necessarily it's family. This was also written after leaving uh, Skids. And uh, that had a lot of baggage, and that wasn't a fun situation. And uh, I'm absolutely sure he was very happy to start a new project with uh, Bruce. I'm sure he had zero regrets about that. But at the same time, I'm not sure he was necessarily... Um, maybe he hoped that the Skid Saga would end on a better note despite that. So that could be part of this too. There's always a balance to be struck both ways. Because if he's ho at home with his family all the time and don't miss anything family-related, then there's that urging him to create music and to play music for people. So it's a hard balance. And uh, we go on to the second verse.
want to stay out with news like this. All the engines too loud and the pavements hiss. He's walking in the city here with yeah, loud engines and uh, the hissing of uh, tires, perhaps, or just the, the rain or the... It's basically w- walking about. And he's thinking about things. And uh, he comes to that infamous line that everybody wonders about, which goes, how the scouts in the stairwell will meet again. Pull everything inwards, but everything's shame. This is where we have an interesting discrepancy with the with the demo and the lyric sheet in particular. So this would have been a late change because when things are in the lyric sheet, yet they sing a different thing on the album, then, then you're talking about the late time change. And for a song that was written very early in the game, that's very interesting that the last minute he made a change. So on the lyric sheet and in the demo, we have how the scouts in the stairwell will kiss again and talk about justice and freedom and pain. That's a very interesting uh, change. There, there are many theories about the scouts in the stairwell. I have my take on it. And um, it, I don't know if it's the right one, but uh, we know the song is about two things. It might be about more stuff as well, but we know the skids connection and we know the grandma connection and the family connection there. So as he had just left the skids, the song has elements of that in it as well. And I think this line is about that group of people. It's about skids. I think this line indicates it isn't a final farewell. I think they will meet again. And um, who knows why he would refer to Skids as the scouts in the stairwell. I'm sure it's something possibly the members of Skids would know. Uh, Maybe an internal reference, maybe something they experienced or something they laughed at or amongst themselves or whatever. So they would meet again. uh, And that's where the kiss again, kind of uh, from the the demo, could be puzzling. And maybe that's why he changed it. But uh, I think kiss and make up or just being friendly, kind of on the cheek, uh, and especially the second line in the demo, and talk about justice and freedom and pain. You know, I thought of Jubbo's book right away. If you read uh, Jubbo's book on the skids years, those are topics that especially he was very concerned with, justice and freedom and pain. They would have these discussions, discuss politics, discuss all these things. So maybe one day the scouts in the stairwell can meet again and talk about all these things. But then in the actual song, after they meet again and not kiss again, he pulls everything inwards, but everything's shame. So I don't know if that shame is related to the leaving of skids in any way. Um, that's speculation. But the, it's the only really take I can give that line. And for me, that makes sense. And I know there are other interpretations as well. I like that. That's a good interpretation, I think. I haven't heard another one that makes sense to me, but I, I welcome uh, any interpretations that anyone might have. So so to me, the Scouts in the Stairwell is, uh, is skids. And uh, I think it, it's a hopeful line that despite having left the band and maybe not leaving them on the best of terms or in the best situations, I should say, and also keeping the, the Hammersmith gig in mind, which happened late, things were unfortunate and things happened, but maybe one day they can meet again. It's all part of this thing where... That could add to the feeling of, again, everything inwards, but everything's loose. There's um, a lot to make sense of during that time. Keeping in mind, he had just left it and he was just starting a band with uh, with Bruce. So 
a lot of things to make sense of, including the family situation. Yeah. So that takes us back to uh, really the lyrics as uh, you know variations of the first verse and the second verse. And I think uh, I don't think there's anything new coming up in any of uh, of those. So yeah, this uh, this song is a very early take on a theme that he would revisit many many times over really grief over the the battle between professional life and family life and uh and maintaining relationships on both fronts so that's uh it makes it a very interesting uh, very interesting song really if you're going to discuss Stuart Adamson's uh, authorship as good as uh in a big country as lyrically i feel inwards is probably more personal as a lyric to him for for all these reasons uh, the music, again, a very frenetic song. Um, Bruce saying this is a song that never changed, and obviously he's right. It's a song that it has so many layers. This this is, uh, you know, we talked about how In a Big Country was a very good band performance. This is where it's still a band performance, but they're bursting out a bit. You can hear they're now chomping at the bits to get out there and, and break out. And this has a lot of moments. And I think if you're going to pick a song on the crossing that points to where they would go with Steel Town, it's probably inwards. There, there are so many layers. And uh, I think it's the best example of guitar extravaganza and almost a guitar symphony. Words that we can use about Steel Town. I feel this is uh, so much going on musically. It's, uh, I see it really as, um, as a guitarist's dream. I think if I was a guitar player, I would inwards would be one of those songs that would fascinate me endlessly. There are so many layers of guitar, so many movements, if you will. A song that builds and ebbs, goes through changes. And I suspect a song that has many overdubs. And we talked about overdubs last time, and that this album has more overdubs than Steel Town. If that is true, I think some songs has to be culprits of that more than others, because there are definitely simpler songs also on uh, The Crossing. I think this is potentially a more complex one. And it starts really with the intro to the song. This is one that it um, it adds layers in one at a, at a time. And it starts with a fairly simple guitar melody, very quiet one. And then after some bars, another one is added on top of it. And after a couple more bars, yet another thing is added on top of it. And slowly, all these layers establish themselves and builds into the song. So, so in that regard, it reminds me almost, uh, or not that it reminds me, but this song has the same role, perhaps, on The Crossing as a song like uh, Thousand Yards There has on Peace in Our Time, which is a significantly less frantic song. But that is also a song that starts with a guitar part, and then you build on it. And definitely, it never builds to the same amount of layers as inverts. But I feel it has the same role and the same type of approach. And this is what happens when you have Lily White producing rather than Wolf, which we have talked about before so i'm not going to be lured by my own bait so the verses uh, the interesting thing is after that intro you have built the song established it it gets frantic very uh, easily and even when they pull back the instruments a bit for the verses even those so-called quieter parts that allow vocals to be added have something happening in the background there's always that little guitar line do 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 do
it never just settles into a groove. There's always something, some detail going on. And that's, uh, that's just makes it a very fascinating listen. And for a song that is so frenetic as this one, it really is a delight to hear them pull back in the middle after the second chorus. They almost uh, draw their breath before they start building up and getting into it again. And this is something they would do from time to time. Just stop in the middle a little bit, draw it back, and then rebuild. And they did it well. And this is, uh, I think, the first example of, of that in, in a very noticeable way. jump to the outro uh, i think the outro of the song is incredible i think it might even be my favorite part of the song it's such a huge sounding play out with a proper ending rather than a fade that is fantastic and they're playing all over the place it sounds almost like chaos but it's very controlled chaos and it's just fantastic and very important a proper ending not a fade so ladies and gentlemen this is how you end a song that is just phenomenal So um, yeah, I I I have a lot of like for in, inverts, especially instrumentally. The song is really exciting, and uh, and lyrically, it's very poignant. Uh, where this may be perhaps a little weaker than other songs on the crossing is the vocal melody, and I'm coming at this from a as from a point of view of someone who likes to hum a catchy melody or whistle it, or the the vocal melody is usually the melody of the song that you end up with. And I would say that the vocal melody of this song is not the catchiest on the album. It's very much a full band song. It's a frenetic instrumental track, really personal lyrics with a pretty flat vocal melody. If anything, that's what I would catch and perhaps see if you could find a hook for the vocal melody. Like the instrumentally, it has so many hooks and vocally it has less hooks. So um, it's not a problem, really. It's, uh, it's just most of the songs on this album have incredibly and very catchy vocal melodies and this one is not quite on that level but it's not a problem at all this this is a song meant to be really enjoyed for the frantic music that it delivers and how that really matches so well the lyrics which are like it says everything inwards everything loose it's it's nothing makes sense and the franticness of the music kind of underlines that so all in all this uh this is quite a, a moment Yes, without a doubt. Yeah, that's great. Uh, 
It's uh, it's, it's funny. This this song didn't really. When I first got this album, I remember not liking the. I mean, I liked it, but it, it didn't really grab me that much. And I think I think it was because I was just so young and I was just kind of getting into the style of music, and I was I was not quite at the level yet where I could process a lot of these things that you mentioned musically and certainly lyrically. I had no clue what it was talking about back then, as, you know, as someone who's young. But as I've gotten older and as I've I've learned what the song is about, and as I've appreciated the music musical nature of the song, it's really risen quite high on my list, not just on the crossing, but as a big country song. Um, I, I think it's so interesting too, that this is the second song on the album because with, with the first two songs, we get not only what the, the whole mentality and the whole, and the ideals that, that spawn big country and that would sort of, um, you know, govern what big country's music would be about initially um, and, and their whole, you know, as we said, manifesto for even their existence. But in the second song, we would get a lot of the things that would cause the band's demise. And, and that would eventually lead to Stewart's demise, to be honest. And it's, it's really, it's really kind of interesting that those two songs in a big country with, with this wide eyed optimism of, of what you could accomplish is followed by a song like Inwards, which is, sort of like um uh, an allusion to the, the this depression and these feelings that would sort of haunt Stuart his entire life and um y- with with just being this this family man and it's you know it's it's interesting that this was written during the skids and and one of the times that he left the skids and uh, I think that is really important and and especially to your interpretation of the scouts in the stairwell which which is a really good interpretation, I think could very well, you know, be it. And if not, it's certainly a, a logical way to look at it. It's, it's very interesting that, that we talk about the skids with this song because there's a, there's sort of a rare video clip on the internet, um, on YouTube. And, uh, it's Stuart meeting up with Richard Jobson again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and they sit down and Jobson was at the time hosting this show and he was interviewing Stuart and he even performed with Stuart on stage, uh, briefly they didn't do a skid song i don't believe but they did something else but he talked to stewart in this in the in this park and he was talking to him about his career and up to this point and and it's funny because richard jobson says uh talks to stewart again about being the family man and always wanting to be home and here's here's a little clip of that the album came out went top top five for however many weeks the, the tour was sold out people still want to know about you don't they does that surprise you? Um, not at all. I think when uh, when you're the ones that are out there actually doing the gigs, you know, when you're out there uh, playing to people, sharing the songs with people, and you see the reaction that, that the songs have on people, and uh, for me that's always what it's been about anyway, you know. It's, uh, if yeah. people are interested in your work, then that's, that's, surely that's what counts. Does it still give you as much pleasure as it did when we were out there, as we boys? I think it does, I, uh, very much so. I, I think the, the motivation comes from me. Uh, just the sheer spontaneity of, of being involved in that whole life thing, you know, and it's something that I really enjoy. I mean, I've been doing that since I was virtually 15 years old, you know, you know. Because when I used to work with you, you always used to have a problem of, like, the touring element of it. You, you want to get home because you're always a bit of a family man. Yeah, I'm, I'm still pretty much like that, but I still enjoy the actual playing, you know, once you're out there and on the stage. I think that's it. The traveling's still a bind. I'm still not a great, uh, great traveller, but the playing's what it's all about. 
Do you still have that like enthusiasm about writing a song or sitting down and writing a song? Obviously, you don't have the inspiration that I used to give you anymore. <laughs> I mean, what do you write about now? Um, I write about people and situations. You know, I like to sort of uh, put people into, into situations where they have to uh, to react to the adversity they find themselves in. And tell little stories about it. But those are the kind of things I write about. Because before it used to be like, the big metaphors, you know, the mountains, That's the right, yep. valleys. I think. Uh, that's something when you, when you first sit down to write lyrics, those things are attractive because you can hide any meanings you want to and all those big metaphors, you know. And I think as your confidence grows and as you become more sure of yourself, you start to, you can get a bit more uh, introverted about it. So it's interesting that, you know, Jobson, and, and when you read Jobson's book, you know, you can even put it into the context of he was upset with Stuart. And, and probably when he asked Stuart this question, there was still a lot of that resentment there, even though it didn't really come out. But... Yeah, he was very upset with Stuart for for having this um, predilection of of leaving the band and and leaving them high and dry sometimes and leaving them to you know there's a story in his book about the kids having this gigantic show and Stuart was nowhere to be found and and he didn't turn up until like five minutes before the show and nobody knew he didn't say anything to anyone nobody knew if he was going to make it or not and you know when you're a band like the Skids uh, Stuart Adamson is pretty important to have on stage. So, um, you know, he was upset about that. And I'm sure Stuart was ashamed of that in a way, too. And, and I think when we get to the – I'm just going to kind of go all over the place here since you, you talked about everything else very well. But, um, you know, when we talk about lines like everything shame, I think that shame is multifaceted, uh, especially when we talk about him leaving the skids because he probably was ashamed of leaving his friends in that in a lurch like that as well as being ashamed of missing out on the family things that he was missing out on um you know his child had not been born yet at this point but um it's it's clear that even even then at such a young age he was so you know so drawn to to family and to to these other things that just living a life on the road as a rock and roll musician was not at all conducive to. And um, so, yeah, that, that really interests me because you can, you can certainly understand it when the child comes into the, into the equation, because, you know, no parent wants to miss the birth of their first child. And that's a huge thing that you can never get back again. And he missed that. But when they're, but when you're young, you know, very early twenties and you're starting this adventure with these other guys and you've got all these other things, it's interesting that, and it, and it and it it's a real interesting window into Stewart's personality and character that the death of his grandmother would inspire such emotion and this sort of homesick feeling even even at that early of an age so this song really i mean it, it's it's become such an interesting window in into Stewart and the person he was and the things that would that would haunt him throughout his his life and um you know even with the toward the end of big country in the nineties, late nineties, he was doing the same thing. You know, he was, he was disappearing. He was, people couldn't find him. And, you know, we've, I've got an email from him after this thing where he missed the Brian Adams show. And, and I know a lot of fans were reaching out to him at the time because they had his email address. So this wasn't anything, you know, hugely uh, out of character because he would respond to people. But I remember asking him, like, are you okay? And is everything all right? And he, he had said, like, I'm a guy who really values my family. And I felt like I couldn't live up to the expectations that they had of me. And so I just I just 
took the phone off the hook and went out of commission so that I could fulfill the, my family obligations. And so, you know, that, that went with him from the beginning or up until the end. And, um, it's so interesting, you know, from a character study to see it expressing itself here. So, yeah, I mean, just, just fascinating lyrics, uh, in this song and you, you covered them very well. And like, I wouldn't want to go home on a night like this. I wouldn't want to stay out with news like this. You know, you, you get that feeling from the whole skids, um, thing that, that he, he doesn't want to go to the gig. You know, that's kind of way I taking, I take that wouldn't want to go out or stay out. You know, he doesn't want to go to the gig. He doesn't want to hang out with the band with this news. He wants to go home. But then in the beginning, he says, I wouldn't want to go home on a night like this. So that's kind of contradictory. Um, but maybe that points back to the shame that he feels, you know, like he, he's got this news that his grandmother's passed away. And yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think I emphasize this, but I think there is a conflict where, yeah, he, don't, he doesn't want to go home with the news that his grandmother has died and stay at home. That's just, he's going to go nuts. But at the same time, he doesn't want to stay out with news like this. Now, yeah. what, what should he do? And it's kind of, that goes back to the line, everything's inwards, but everything's loose. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, and everything's shame too. It's like, I, yeah. I, he was, maybe he was ashamed that, you know, as you said, he missed, well, he missed the death of his grandmother. I, d I don't even know the specifics of what she was dealing with. If it was something sudden, if it was something that she was dealing with for a long period of time, but, um, you know, he, he might've been ashamed of, of missing out on being there with her. So going home is going to make that shame even more powerful. And yet at the same time, like you say, this conflict staying where he is, is also adding to the shame because he feels like he should have been home. And, and that, that line, the light in the window has burned his fuse. So, so beyond his years to write something like that. Yeah. But that's, that's uh typical of Stewart. I mean, he was writing these great songs with the skids when he was just a, a kid, basically. And that line is uh, very much uh, those boys own adventures style illustration. Yeah, it really is. And I think this song really, you get into a lot of that too, even with the scouts thing, but um you know, and, and you mentioned already what it was, but it's all, also, you can take that as, you know, you leave a light on for someone for them to come home, but it, he, he's not coming home. It's burned all the way down and they're waiting for him. You could also take it from that perspective. Like, they're waiting for him to come home. They want him to come home, but he's, he's not, you know, he's not coming home. Um, so yeah, great, great lyrics and engines too loud. All the pavements hiss. I definitely took, always took that as, uh, the hiss of tires on a wet road and everything is loud because it's, you know, the engines are too loud because he's out in this, but he doesn't want to be there. And these loud engines and the sounds of being in a city and, and everything are just, you know, it, it's hurting him. It's, it's bothering him because he wants to be back where his home is and in quiet, I guess. Um, and the hiss, I think is almost like a menacing type of hiss, you know, that, that he chose that line and the pavements hiss at him. Yeah. He doesn't belong here. Yeah. It's kind of the way it seems, but you know, the, as you said, the scouts in the stairwell, that's the one that people always wonder about, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? We'll kiss again. We'll meet again. Um, you know, before hearing your interpretation, I, I was just going to go with, it's one of those lines that we might not, you know, in a lot of these songs, when we do these deep dives, we run the risk of trying to force an interpretation on things, which maybe there is no interpretation for them, or maybe it's something that can't be interpreted. And it's one of those things where we get 
the feel for it. I mean, what I was thinking is like maybe the scouts in the stairwell was some sort of uh, inside thing that only he understood. Maybe it was with a childhood friend. Maybe, maybe it was with um, someone in his family or you know, whatever. But, um, I, I think your skids reference is really a good one. And, and that, that's the one that I would probably gravitate toward at this point because, and I think, I think it is vital when you look at those early lyrics that you brought out, you know, talk about justice and freedom and pain. And when you look at the time when this was written, yeah. when the skids were very much a thing. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a great interpretation that, that really does work very well. I mean, when you consider like, scouts and boy scouts and i even you know even in pre- preparing for this which i actually did do some preparing um <laughs> i just looked up scouts you know in scotland you know and and, and the s- scouting started in scotland in 1908 <laughs> so there that was a thing and and Look scouting throughout yeah exactly so scouting throughout the world you know in america wherever it's it's always been this thing where young <laughs> young guys would bond together and they would form this kind of group where they were doing going on adventures together and and doing things together and becoming men and um you know or learning about different things and uh, and they were they were just forming this this bond you can certainly see that with in relation to his bond with the band and with the skids so i think that's great um and it's and it also lends credence to why he would change it too because you know yes he he wants to distance himself from himself from the skids yeah exactly that's that's what I was going to say that the scouts in the stairwell is very neutral it doesn't uh, you know it it people still wonder about that one because it's not so clear and i don't think he yeah. wanted to say one day lads we might play together again and uh right. talk about all the stuff we used to no he wanted to obfuscate this and uh put it uh you know, in a way that perhaps only those people would know if that. And I think that's why he took out that line about talk about uh, talk about justice and freedom and pain. I think yeah. I think that line cements it for me. Exactly. I think that makes it a little bit, you know, maybe too clear for his comfort at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's great. And and even the kiss again, you know, you could t- certainly take that as kiss and make up because uh, they did have a lot of you know, turmoil back then, obviously with a lot of it related to what he was doing yeah. um, to the band. So yeah, so good, good interpretation on that. I like that. Uh, I'm going to go with that one for, for now. <laughs> we, we'll never know for sure, but that, that works out real well. Um, yeah. I mean, just going back musically to the song, I mean, I, this is a song that I think, even though I, I do think Lily White did a great job with it in a lot of respects. And I'm, I said this on the first uh, show. Yeah. I, I really, like a lot of the demo the things about the demo um better in in some respects i mean first of all the demo kicks out kicks off with one of the demos there are so many of them but one one of the demos kicks off with um drums as well as that little guitar part which which to me i always always call like the chicken picking guitar part because it's it just always reminds me of like chickens going picking grain off the, off the ground at a farm like <laughs> you see these little chickens moving around. So I call that the chicken picking part, um, which I love. It's great. But one of the demos begins in a couple of the demos, I think, begins with drums hitting immediately as well as that part. That I like. I like what Steve Lillywhite did where he took the drums away, because I think that starting just with that riff is what it needs. It's a it's a great little fun little riff and it it starts out well. And then the drums kick in. I think that works better.
But some of the things about the demo that I liked better were, were number one, the tempo of it, I think, as you mentioned, too, was a little faster. And I think that that helps with the frenetic nature of the song somewhat. Um, I feel like this the song on this album, um, and, and I've got it ranked very high, so this isn't like a huge deal, but I think it's the production is a little a little dilutes just a little bit the power of the song live because this song didn't really hit me as being the great song that it is until I heard it done live. And when I heard that riff played live and I heard the, all these great guitar parts played live and the drumming and that great middle section, um, the power of the song really came through for me. And I feel like it's not quite there as much on the album version as great as it is i would agree with that okay but but when you call this a guitar symphony i I think that's right on the money and and it's it is i mean there are so many guitar parts in this so many great little parts that complement each other and we're really seeing that and and yeah that that ending is is just gorgeous and one of the things for me um that I, I I wish they would bring back in a way when they play this song is is that ending lead line. It's just so cool, and it's just this lead guitar line that's that plays at the end, and it just you know den, den, den. it descends, it, it ascends again, it descends again, it plays throughout the end portion, and it's so beautiful. It's just a great little brand new melody to the song, and I just love it. Um, they don't tend to do that live these days, and it, it's probably a, a difficult part to play. And, and I, I don't even think when Stuart was in the band, they did it that often. I know they did it at times. And I think at other times they didn't do it.
In fact, I don't think they did it on the um, the, the final fling shows that they played. Uh, and I remember listening for it. Like, are you going to bring that little part back again? Nope. Okay. So, shoot. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it takes more effort uh, without a doubt to play that part. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's another, it's an early example. This song is of, uh, of those songs that are just so much fun musically, but, the, but the lyrics are so, so dark and, and, uh, and, you know, isolated. And it's, it's, it's the first example that we get of that. And it's, and like I said, it's interesting that they followed such an optimistic song, like in a big country with this one. Um, and you know, not, maybe they didn't put tons of thought into how they would go next to each other from a thematic standpoint, but, and because the song had been around for a while already, but, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, you've got both sides of the spectrum in the, in those first two songs, you've got the, and Stewart even says this on on one of those interview discs from the Seer period. He says he can be wildly optimistic one minute, and you know I think he even said like cutting cutting his wrist the next, and it's, <laughs> it's a bad thing now to think about. But you get that in this album already. I mean, you get the wild optimism of optimism of in a big country, and then you get lyrically anyway the the real isolated sadness of of inwards, which I think most of us as fans couldn't really pick up on until later. But uh, I, yeah, I, I think live is where the song shines the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's great on this album. You know, don't get me wrong, but uh, I think it could, it could, it could have used maybe just a little kick, a little more of a kick tempo wise, and some other things to, to. Uh, I think that that main guitar riff, for example, which I just love, the doom, 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 doom. Yeah, that could have been brought out a little bit more, like it is live, because that's such a powerful, meaty riff. But um, 
this is just nitpicking. I think it's an incredible song. And uh, again, one that, that didn't hit me at all when I first heard it. It was probably one of the weaker songs for me when I first heard it. But uh, now it's certainly gone a complete 180. Yeah. You know, for me, this was always uh, an appreciated song, but it was never a song that rose much either. It was a solid album track, and uh, that's mostly where it stayed all these years. And it's it's really only the last year and even half year, as I've known that this crossing thing has loomed, that actually it's something has clicked and I like it uh, a little more. Just the last thing I'll say is that I, I see what you're saying about the melody of the of the song not being as strong. I, I do think that it's at its strongest, though, in that chorus. I, I think there's just something so beautiful about that chorus, both melody lyric and just the chords there um and i think i think you hear a lot of that beauty too in, in our friend jason allen's cover of it which we posted on our site recently and mm-hmm. did a nice slow laid-back cover of it i wouldn't want to go home on a night like Find out the sum of the past has been missed And the light in the window has burned its fuse I pull everything in words but everything is loose Everything in words but everything is loose of that song i've grown to just adore that chorus (laughs) nice yeah okay so i have um uh let's mention the quote from tony butler on this song oh yeah yeah where he uh mentioned for inverts classic this is what the band was about at the time the whole guitar thing echoes harmonies driving rhythm instrumental sections this was one of the reasons i was in the band at the beginning great music so yeah, solid thumbs up yeah. from him. And also we should mention, we asked Bruce back in episode uh, 11, I think, what was his favorite track on The Crossing. And back then he uh, mentioned Inwards. But when I mentioned this in a Facebook discussion several years later, it's actually not too long ago, he seemed to have changed his mind because he jumped in and said, I might have said at the time, but this isn't my favorite from The Crossing. It's <laughs> just, okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's all I said. It, it was a little strange because he never actually said which one was his favorite. But in any case, I think we can conclude that it's a song that's up there for him. And uh, sometimes in the past, he has picked it as his favorite. Well, his 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 uh, favorites must change like ours do. So uh, probably, know. yeah, and and Same. and that's fair, you know. That that's yeah. fair. But uh, yeah, yeah. It, it 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 seems to be up there for him in the mix. And 
and they do still play it. Like, uh, you know, not that that statement means a lot because they keep playing all of the crossing all the time. Right, right. But yeah, they they have, once they put this back in the set, they really did seem to keep it, even even when Mike joined. Yeah. You know, so, and and another funny little trivia thing, and this was, this was one of two, one of the two songs that were initially given to Ian Grant, like the very first couple of demos that Stewart gave mm. to him. He said, Heart and Soul and Inwards were the songs that he listened to. So, yeah, it's, it's, this song really has deep roots in uh, the very beginnings of Big Country. Nice. All right. So where are you ranking it? Well, uh, yeah, so this is my number 10. This is my least ranked, so obviously I must hate the song, except I don't. It's a great song. It comes back to it. It was never a song that leaped out. It was a solid album track. And like I said, it, it's grown only recently. And to be honest, I was wondering, this is the song that battles with In a Big Country for slot number nine. And I was undecided, which one should I go with? But uh, actually, I didn't tell this story on the on the show, but I started ranking The Crossing two years ago. I, ha- <laughs> I, I have a document because I knew I would have to do it. And it was tough as a bitch. So I just th- <laughs> threw down some rankings and closed the document and left it. And then three or four months later, I, I saw it again and pulled it up and I said, oh, really? So that's what I put down. Well, let me redo this because this clearly can't be right. And I did another take. And after a couple more months, I did another take. And I've now ranked it like seven or eight times over the course of the past two years. And in oh, all man. of those rankings, Inverts has been the last one, except possibly the one, if I ranked it today for the first time, it could have been number nine. But I'll, I'll go with my sort of stable longevity, how I always felt about it. It is my number 10. And it's the lack of a strong melody line that really is the kicker, more than uh, being tired of In a Big Country. Because I'm not as tired of Inverts as I am of In a Big Country. It's just less remarkable for me from that stance. If I was a guitar player, I'd probably rank it like you, which have it all the way up at... (laughs) Number two. Ah, ha. It's my number two. I had a feeling it was up there. That's quite a bit up there. It's fine, you ignorant slut. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you if you'd have asked me, like I said, if you'd have asked me in the beginning, uh, toward the beginning, I probably would have had it. I don't think I ever would have had it ten, but it would have been low, much much lower. But I, I just come to come to really love this song over the years. Yeah, um, pro- probably both for the for the lyrical content, which I relate to on some level um yeah yeah that's good and also just just the guitars and everything else so yeah it's it's an amazing song to me i i make it i give it a number two it's a wonderful song and uh that just brings up the point you you can uh, judge the quality of an album by the song you rank the lowest and in that regard the crossing clearly is an album that's uh way 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 up there for me i don't want to rank any song number 10 but there we go. At least I'm done with it now. That's right. Gosh, you got nine and ten out of the way right away. I did. <laughs> and it's a luxury problem with this album. <laughs> That's right. But uh, let's not forget the uh, the public ranking. Uh, we have um, the 80 voters who put down their votes for inverts. And uh, I can reveal that uh, they are sort of between you and me, slightly closer to me. They rank it number six. That is the public vote. And Interesting. Uh, I counted the number of number ones and number 12s. And uh, Inwards actually has a very high number of number ones 
relative to some of the others, but it also has a lot of lower votes. Eight people has it as their favorite. Eleven people have it as their least favorite alongside myself. Interesting. So, um, yeah, way up there. The average of all the votes, for those who are interested in these things, 5.78. And this is for a ranking of between 1 and 10. So, and if you're interested in further statistical, we can really go to town on this in my document. But the, obviously, with 80 people, the minimum sum a song can get is 80, and the maximum is 800. Inwards had 463. <laughs> wow. Is that enough statistics for now? I think it is. But six is, uh, <laughs> six is respectable, especially for a song that um, clearly has divisive opinions. And it really has some people high, but a lot of people also towards the lower end. Yeah. Definitely. Very interesting. All right. So with the statistics exhausted, there's only one left. And that is for this, for this fat drunken pig waiting in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) Wake up, you piece of garbage. Come on. It's time for the Karate Bark Countdown. Get up. Let's hear it. Crossing Karate Bark Countdown. Four. Interesting. So Inwards has four. Four karate barks. Huh. I, I get the feeling that we may have exhausted most of the karate barks already, but we'll find out. Now, in the meantime, I have to send our voice over artist back into his filthy uh, cage, which is full of his own leavings. Um, you wait there until the next episode commences, and then you'll be called on again. All right, so we got through two songs. I think that's incredible. Incredible progress. We got through two songs. Um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what our initial predictions on, on what this deep dive would be. But, you know, we've, we started to move a lot quicker on Inward, so we'll see what happens with the rest of them. But um, there you go. There's the beginning of the crossing deep dive, and we've got a lot more uh, waters to dive into with the eight remaining tunes. Yeah, and let me remind you that uh, before we started today, you said, I hope we can make it through a thousand stars. And we did, we did half of that. I don't know why I ever say anything. It never works out. Never. I said, well, that sounds optimistic, but at least chance should be doable. But there's a, yeah, even, even I failed. Jeez. Insane. What can you do? Yeah, well, it is what it is. But like you said, I think in a big country, we'll be the biggest by far. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Inwards uh, seem to set a good... St- hopefully a good pace for the way the rest of them will go so we'll, we'll find out won't we Very well. um but anyway thanks for listening to yet another opus everyone and uh you know leave your comments on our facebook page if you're not a member there please join we don't have a ton of i mean we've got a decent amount but we don't have a ton of members yet we get so many listens so yeah you know, why not why not join the page <laughs> there are many people who aren't members i mean i um, i posted about the uh, the poll on both the trading post and uh, through our big country groups. And that led to uh, a sort of trickle of members, the people coming through. And uh, to all the new members, thank you for joining. You're very welcome to uh, to our group page. And thank you for listening, most of all. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to compete with the Andy Inksters and the Stuart Menzies of the world. 
and their their iron grip on big country Facebook fan page presence. But uh, we, we do our best. We, we've got some interesting discussion from time to time. From time to time, yeah. Yeah, so so give us a follow, won't you? And <laughs> anyway. I think, I, I think I'm getting why we are at the level we are. <laughs> Probably. Nobody wants to go read our words after they listen to <laughs> three hours of bantering oh god well you can come to the page to complain yeah why don't you do that 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 is fine you can do that how about that if nothing else so 80 episodes now behind us and who knows what's to come chance is to come there you go chance will be next so we'll see you next time with that so farewell Bye. But, um, oh shoot, I, I lost my train of thought <laughs> and I really had one. Um, oh, where was I going with that? Oh crap. Oh, well, anyway, I'm sure I'll find it again. I have to send our voice over artist back into his filthy, uh, cage, which is full of his own leavings. Um, you wait there until the next episode commences and then you'll be caught on again. <laughs> oh man and and this guy lives in the same man cave that you record this from and where you have your big country collection amongst leavings and other things <laughs> <laughs> yes but he will be uh he will be exterminated once th- this podcast series ends oh gosh let's hope so <laughs> the crossing karate bark count for in a big country cool so that. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> Karate Bark Count H. So how long did we spend on in a big country? <laughs> I think it's an hour and a half at least. <laughs> at least. <laughs> oh, let's get inwards done and then call it a day. Yeah, I think so. I think that will be episode one. I think that will be two hours. That's good. In- that's long enough for one episode. Yeah. I actually posted on the page still still talking about in a big country <laughs> <laughs> let me see let me see <laughs> and with some uh edits and sound bites it might be longer than an hour and a half oh yeah yeah without a doubt well, let's go for the record for one song man <laughs> we gotta at least get one more in the can now we do even if, even if it doesn't make the episode <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> well Whatever, dude. All right. Yeah, really. Inverts. Let's, let's do that one. That should not take as long. It will probably take long. I, I don't think it will take as long. All right. <clears throat> Inverts. All right. Song number two, Inverts. 
maybe this won't be as long as in a big country, but if it is, then so be it. But we'll see. Um, 